back, Buckets and Dan, episode 31. We're going remote here, folks. The Orange Zone has hit Western New York, and Buckets and Dan do not take any chances with that. So Bill is back home on a Zoom call. Buckets, how are things over in the homeland? Yep, um, we are an essential service. So, you know, no matter even if we go to red, nothing's going to stop us, you know, from delivering some great content. And if you think that Buckets doesn't have the same juice today or maybe his ex- his same exuberance in his in his answers and in his voice, it's because he's down in his basement with his laptop on a dryer, I believe, standing, fighting the elements as Mrs. Buckets sleeps. She's got the late shift tonight over at the hospital. So he's doing his part, and we're all doing our part, giving you a show during this pandemic as we've done from the very beginning and we've, we've reached a, a milestone in the year, the Thanksgiving special for Buckets and Dan, the first annual Thanksgiving special. We got two great guests, Buckets. Why don't you tell us who we got? Yeah, Dan, we got, you know, th- this one's a little, uh-oh, oh, just start, I just started the dryer <laughs> by accident because <laughs> I was leaning into it. That's classic. Um, but, you know, we have... A guy, it's an interesting guest. You know, we do a blast from the past, and this is a real blast from the past. We don't have Drew Bledsoe. We have his dad. We have Mac Bledsoe, and he gives us a fantastic interview because he's a really, really um, incredible uh, guy in his own right. Um, Has a wonderful organization that he's developed over time, a former teacher about parenting, and he talks a lot about how he – you know, was, was a good parent to Drew. And, and we go through Drew's whole career, you know, when he was benched in favor of Brady and that Super Bowl run, you know, how he took that. He gave us some great insight on that. And he also talked a lot about, um, you know, Drew's time in Buffalo and, and how the, the family really enjoyed their time here. So I thought it was a really interesting interview. I hope you give it a listen. And Dan, we got a really good Mets guest where I let you really take the reins because uh, you're the Mets guy in the show. Yeah, Michael Barron, a former beat writer. Now he does his own thing covering the Mets. He hopped on the podcast to talk about Sandy Alderson, the current president of the Mets. He had a press conference the other day. So we talk a lot of Mets, some moving forward stuff, some predictions, a real great interview if you're a Mets fan, even if you're just a baseball fan. It's a real, real good listen. We also have the return of... Mount Rushmore season. We have a Thanksgiving special where we have our wonderful fiancés on as we discuss the best things about Thanksgiving, some of them a little out of the box. Feel free to go vote for who you think had the best team at Mount Rushmore 716. Let's talk real quick, Bill. Uh, Let's let's rattle off some things. Listen, I've I've been telling my classes this this, uh, same message this week as well. It's easy to focus on the negatives. And I know this is not something I have to tell you, Bill. You're an eternal optimist. It's easy to look at the negatives right now. It's easy to talk about what we can't do this this year and how different of a year this is. Family gatherings will be smaller. Dinners will be different because we're not feeding mo- countless mouths for the most part. So it'll be a weird year, hopefully a year that we can look back on in years p- coming up and be like, wow, that was an interesting time. But let's take time to appreciate it. For the most part, unless I don't know something, in which I apologize, but our families have been very lucky in terms of the overall health during this COVID pandemic. And I know I've mentioned this before, but we're over a year now since my mother and brother 
went under the knife as my brother donated half his liver to my mom who had liver cancer. And they scooped her liver right out through a chunk of my brother's. And now they've both regenerated to full health. They've had their, their one-year checkup. They're both doing great. Um, so I'm very, very thankful for that, just my family's overall health. Uh, well, how about you, Bill? What are you thankful for? Yeah, I'm very thankful um, for everything. You know, same, very, very lucky and fortunate, you know, for family. It's it's really the same same every year. And, and actually, um, I do take a lot of time to, uh, to, to try and appreciate all the things that I do have, family, friends, and being able, being able to do most of the things that I want to do. And if you reflect on this past year, Bill, if you would have sat down at the Thanksgiving table last year and said Buckets and Dan will be officially locked down one year from now, I wouldn't have believed you. I wouldn't have nope. believed you. But we are, we are both very lucky in that sense as well that we're getting welcomed into an additional amazing family. So, again, ladies and gentlemen, if you could take one message out of this, let's stay positive. Let's keep grinding through this, and eventually we can return to some normalcy. But speaking of normalcy, the Bills will be returning to some normalcy after a bye week. Buckets, you do anything fun over the bye week? Hit the links a bunch, I heard. Yeah, a lot of golf. And what did I do last Sunday? I went and did a little photo shoot down at uh, Chestnut Ridge. Clean shaven, mind you. Fun. Um, you got to get that stuff out of the way on bye week. But, you know, I had that in the contract. Yeah, I'll go take the pictures in the morning. But that means I'm taking, you know, 50 or less steps the rest of the day. I'm going to lock in for some football. So I got to watch a lot of out-of-town games and get a feel for a lot of different teams around the league. Absolutely. And if you look around the league – you really could not have asked for a better bye week for the Bills in terms of the standings. Every AFC East team losing. Houston, who Miami owns their first-round pick, they win against New England, so they drop some spots. Or is it rise some spots? I don't really know how you describe that, but either way, it was good for the Bills. They lower their stock in the draft. Miami gets upset at Denver, the, the Tua shine starting to come off a little bit as Fitz comes in and does a classic Fitz drive, leading them 99 yards and throwing into double coverage to really seal the game there. The Ravens lose, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit later on when we discuss the Ravens-Steelers game, but the Ravens lose, which puts them in a very precarious situation versus the Steelers because they could drop to 6-5, and five, or excuse me, yeah, I think 6-5, and five, but they also have a chance to win out. Their schedule really lightens up after this week. Let's see what else happened. Uh, oh, Brady choking, choking it away, looking very old uh, against the Rams on Sun. Excuse me, that was Monday Night Football. And Bill, actually, fun little fact: I did the old prop bet where you try to guess the range of scores. Nailed it for uh, four to one odds there. So that was fun. So yeah, it was. It really was a great, a great weekend for the Bills, but we're looking forward to the Bills Chargers this week. But before we get there, Bill, how about we hit some Q&A? Question. What kind of bear is best? It's a ridiculous question. False. Black bear. Why are you the way that you are? What'd you do? Hey, what do you guys like better, nurse? cheerleader bill let's start with some nba free agency was underway this past weekend and i will start with some not great news out of the buckets and dan technical corner dan screwed up we had some electricity problems during a great interview with nba reporter mo dakil of 
thejump.net and Bleacher Report. So we actually lost that interview. So I will try to reiterate some Classic. of the stuff Mo said. It was a tough one. He really was providing great, great insight. I'm going to message him after this episode drops and be like, sorry, man, we'd love to have you on another time. So that kind of stinks. So we're, you're, instead, you're going to get some great NBA insight with two very novice fans here and Bill and I. Bill, what was your biggest NBA free agency takeaway? That's excuse me. Yeah. This this is a question that we're going to start off in general. Then we'll get to our fans' questions. Dan, I thought there was one clear winner of this NBA free agency and an NBA draft, and it's the team that I feel like has been in a perpetual rebuild. Um, you know, going over a decade now, and that's the Atlanta Hawks. I got them in our five-year dynasty league, and well, I feel that's really why good. you're so high on them. Really, really, really excited about them, and here's why. I mean, yes, they have the, the young superstar in Trey Young. Okay, what do they do? They go out and get two other – I mean, one, one to Savvy Vet and Rajon Rondo in, in free agency, and they also got Chris Dunn, a former high pick, who's a really good defender, um, and, and they got him on a really reasonable deal, two years, just over $9 million. Okay, so if you think about their backcourt, you know, and you can add to that when they just add Bogdan Bad. Bogdan Bogdanovich. Okay. He's a guy who's averaged about 15 a game for Sacramento. He was rumored to go to Milwaukee. It didn't work out. Um, and Sacramento did not match Atlanta's offer. I thought that was a good offer from Atlanta. He's a guy who can fill it up. And you also got Kevin Herter, Kevin Herter behind him, uh, who's a high pick as well. And then they also go out and get Danilo Gallinari, who's he's certainly been around for a long time, but can shoot it with the best of them. They got some high picks. You think about this team, Dan, yes, they've been really bad, but they've been able to draft guys like DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish, John Collins. You hope those guys in the front court can can kind of um, really elevate their game in year two, year three, a year four of their careers. And then they also have Clint Capella, who seems like he's been in the league forever, um, but a guy who's only, I think, 26 or 27 years old. And then in the draft, six pick overall, they get Onyeka Ancognu, and, uh, and who doesn't USC. who doesn't love his game? You know, from USC, and I loved his post, you know, selection kind of response and his interview. Um, that's a team that you know we there's a lot of NBA teams who are kind of seem like they're always in a rebuild. Like the they got a lot of young talent, like the T Wolves of the past. But I think this is a team where the rebuild rebuild is officially over, and I think they're going to be in the playoffs this year. I, I could see them winning a playoff series. Yeah, very interesting stuff that the Hawks did, and especially the East is usually pretty wide open once you get past the top two. Boston, I would say, got worse. The Bucks made some interesting moves. The Bucks kind of screwed themselves. They tried doing a little tampering with our guy Bogdan, shot themselves in the foot, but they do go out and get Drew Holiday giving up picks that, are, I mean, it's like me in the video game, Bill, trading like a first-round pick four years down the road knowing I'm not going to play that many years in NHL, the video game, but they will have to pay the piper at some point, and the Pelicans just gobbling up picks while also going to get Steven Adams. So, I mean, they made some interesting moves too. They locked up uh, – what's that dude's name that they just locked up? Brandon Ingram. Brandon? Brandon? Yeah, did you know, a little fun fact about the Pelicans, that Zion Williamson is the longest tenured player on that team. That can't be true. That is true. That's pretty wild. They let Redick walk? Everyone's gone. Wow, that's interesting. What else did we – what else happened over free agency? The Heat running it back. They lock up Bam to a max deal. They bring back uh, – what's that? Miles Leonard. They bring back 
uh, Gordon Drogic. So they're trying to run it right back. And some big names will still be on the move. you got a lot of names being floated out right now. Will the Rockets blow it up? John Wall, Russell Westbrook, they didn't get traded for each other yet, right? Nope. Nope. you got Boogie Cousins going down to Houston. you got Will Bradley Beal get traded. So there's a lot of names that still might be moved, so we'll see. We'll, yeah. we'll have some more insight on that moving forward. So a lot of times, you know, in our Bills preview, we'll do a bold take. Well, here's a bold take. Your 2023 NBA Finals is going to be between the Utah Jazz and the Atlanta Hawks. That's, yes, I'm officially a Hawks guy and a Jazz guy. That is an NBA for, uh, nightmare in terms of the the income that you're looking for in the NBA Finals. But that is a that is definitely a bold take. That is definitely a bold take. So let's move on to our next. Again, uh, we had a really great interview with a lot more information that unfortunately. I botched during editing, so we um, we are just going to keep moving along here. How about our our good friend Jim Doyle Texas over the weekend and said, Q&A for B&D, is Taysom Hill a better football player than Tim Tebow was? Bones, gut reaction, go ahead. Uh, gut reaction is yes. I think he's a better runner. Um, he's a little bit more athletic, and yeah, I don't think he's the same leader as Tebow was. Obviously, that's why he wasn't drafted like Tebow was. Um, but better better overall football player for the professional game, yeah, it's Taysom Hill. Well, uh, yeah, and it would have been interesting to see because Tebow seems like a – and maybe he's not – maybe he really did think he was going to be a quarter, a franchise quarterback behind the scenes, but he seems like a team-first guy. So it would have been interesting to see if you just flip-flopped, you know, those, those careers if Tebow could have excelled as a Swiss Army knife type player because, I mean, again, he had a crazy throwing motion, wasn't, wasn't very – I guess smooth, but he did win a playoff game, so he had to be somewhat decent as a quarterback. But Taysom Hill actually went like eighteen for twenty-three the other day. So, were you surprised that they went with him over Jameis Winston, Bill? I was very surprised. Um, you know, like you said, gut reaction for me was was a huge surprise because Jameis, you know, he had opportunities to go elsewhere as a backup and chose New Orleans for the opportunity that existed last week and. And I'm sure he's very disappointed. But Hill, man, he looked like a better quarterback than I would have thought. He threw it well. He looked like he had some composure in the pocket. Um, so I was surprised. But you know what? Sean Payton has earned the right in this league to, to make those bold decisions because, you know, Sean Payton's a, a well-respected coach in this league. And, and if he makes that call, you got to respect it as a player on that team. And a lot could happen, obviously, between now and next year. But another gut reaction. I have a follow-up for you, Bill. Would you be comfortable as a Saints fan going into next year with Taysom Hill as your starting quarterback? I don't think I would for a 16-game season. Uh, like I've said on this podcast many times before, I'm not really a fan of of, of guys who are potentially run-first quarterbacks. Um, eventually that catches up to teams. Fair enough, fair enough. I have a couple more here for us, Bill. I have one for you, Bill. How are you feeling about your sleeper team that we went on a nice little segment last week? The Minnesota Vikings go out and they fall victim to the Buckets curse, falling to the Dallas Cowboys in a pretty embarrassing loss. Are you still high in the Vikings? I still think they can make the playoffs, Dan. Yeah, terrible game. Um, but when Mike McCarthy's smashing watermelons, it's, it's tough to top that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They made a good point on part of my take saying that it's ridiculous that those stories don't come out pregame because those types of things should change betting lines when yeah. 
Mike McCarthy goes Gallagher on the haters and just takes a huge mallet to a bunch of watermelons to fire it's his like team a, up. That's like a Johnny Haynes move. That yes, yeah, I have no comment on that, but yeah, that would that is similar. That is similar. Our last one comes from our friend, our good friend, our good friend Rick in North Tonawanda. Buckets and Dan, who do you have winning the NFC East? If you look at the standings right now, the Eagles are in first place at 3-6-1, followed by all three of the other teams in the division at 3-7. and seven. I have an additional question for you, Bill. How many wins does the division leader have at the end of the year? I think you're winning that division at seven and nine, and it's a total toss-up. I'd be, I'd be lying. Oh my gosh, the dryer! <laughs> I'd be lying if I said it, Dan. I'd be lying if I said I knew who would win. But what a story it would be! You want to talk about comeback player of the year? It's comeback player of the generation of the century. Mm-hmm. If Alex Smith, I don't care about a seven and nine record if he gets that team in the playoffs. Um. Yeah, so are, are you take is that your prediction? Is that you're taking Washington? I'll take Washington. They got a good young defense. Alex Smith is a trustworthy quarterback. They got a good running game. And I think they got the best defense in the NFC East. And for that reason, once it gets cold out, I'll take the defense. That's fair. Let's go through each each remaining schedule, if you don't mind. The Dells actually we'll start from the top here. We'll start from the top. Well, we'll start from the top. Let's see. Standings, NFC. All right. So the Philadelphia Eagles, who's just look like a dumpster fire. My goodness, our our buddy Ryan Paris has to be ripping out what little hair he has left because they. Well, I was on the phone with him today, and and the talk right now with from coming from the owner Lowry is uh, Jeffrey Lurie. I'm sorry, is is someone's going to get fired? And it, I think it's going to be Doug Peterson if they don't win the NFC East. And because you think about it from ownership standpoint, Carson Wentz is the person you're invested in, right? And, and you can kind of interchange the coach and the GM, but Carson Wentz is the guy who's got the big guaranteed money coming, whether it was a good contract or not. Um, but, man, I watched that game against Cleveland, and they are a mess. And, a mess. and again, I kind of like Wentz more than the average fan does. I still do think he's a good quarterback. Yes, he's been playing poorly, but they don't scheme players open. I don't think they do a good job of calling plays. I think they put them in bad positions. The offensive line's in shambles. They've had a ton of injuries. I think it's more of a coach thing. Fair. So the Eagles have home against the Seahawks on Monday night this week. Then they go to Green Bay versus the Saints at the Cardinals and at Dallas. I don't know if you could find too many wins there. I really don't. I think if you win one, I really don't think Philadelphia is going to win this division. Then you go to the Giants. They have their remaining schedule includes at the Bengals, at Seahawks, versus the Cardinals, versus the Browns, at the Ravens. Again, Tough schedule. Let's see what Washington has. Obviously, they're at Dallas on Thanksgiving. Boy, everybody's still a Seattle in this division. That stinks for them. But if you look at the – this is not bad. You go – if you can win at Dallas this week, you go at the Steelers, at the 49ers, versus the Seahawks, versus the Panthers. There's at least a couple winnable games in there. Again, it all depends on Jimmy Garoppolo and the overall health of the 49ers. They're kind of a wild card team in this. And then you have the team that I'm picking, and I certainly am not a Cowboys guy ever. But I am an Andy Dalton guy, and I think if you just look at the remaining schedule, if you look at the remaining – oh, actually, I'm missing – oh, I was missing games, I think. Hold on, let me see here. Oh, I was – oh, I'm sorry. I am missing games. Eagles end the year versus Washington. That could be a fun one. The Giants end the year versus the Cowboys, and obviously Washington 
like we just said, they're going to end the year at Philadelphia. So I am going to pick Dallas. I think that that offense is too good not to just rack up points. There's so many weapons. You finally got Dalton back. I think it's we're going to get this later, but I think it's a big Andy Dalton revenge game this uh, this Thanksgiving. And I think their defense is they can find enough plays. But it just comes down to their schedule. They're if they they have the Giants and the Redskins, so they they can take care of their own divisional stuff. Then you got at the Bengals, which is winnable. You got versus the Eagles. I mean, you got a lot of division games left for the Cowboys. So I'm going to pick Dallas there. Any other things you want to talk about before we wrap up the Q and A? That's it. Let's move on to. Hey, you, you know what? Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's send it to Michael Barron right now. We'll send it to Michael Barron, a Mets insider to talk about the new owner, Steve Cohen, and the current GM search and what the Mets might possibly do this offseason. Here we go! Meet the Mets, meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking the ball. Knocking those home runs over Big things are happening in the Big Apple, and for once, the attention is shifted to Queens and not the Bronx. With new ownership underway and the hot stove around the corner, we welcome on Michael Barron, formerly of SNY and Major League Baseball, to talk some Mets baseball. Michael, we hope all is well with you and your family, and we really appreciate you taking time to jump on Buckets and Dan this afternoon. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Michael, uh, as as Buffalo people, this this ownership change is very reminiscent of. I'm not sure how much you pay attention to Buffalo sports, but Terry Pagula taking over in 2011, kind of it rejuvenated. It's, it seems like it's rejuvenated the spirits of Met fans. Says that money is no object. Um, obviously, it hasn't gone so well for the Sabers, but for my own sanity. Tell me why Michael Cohen becoming owner of the Mets is going to make the organization a legitimate, potentially a legit, you know, playoff and World Series contender. And hopefully, what he's saying is not all fluff. Well, you know, I, I don't think I don't think anyone can predict the future. And you just brought up, you know, a good example of how, you know, just because you have an ownership change doesn't, you know, does that that doesn't mean it's, it's going to immediately equate to, um, you know, any sort of success. So. Um, you know, that's not to say that, you know, these guys aren't coming in with, you know, some big words and some big expectations. But, you know, I think one of the things, one of the immediate takeaways that, you know, we've gotten from, you know, Mr. Cohen's press conference and the two times that Sandy Olson has talked is that it, it sounds like there's, you know, at least, you know, a functional path forward. Whereas I think before it was no secret that there were, they were on a dysfunctional path year in and year out. And there was no, there was no, there wasn't a model for sustained success. Now that doesn't mean, you know, the Mets are going to be successful, you know, perennially successful and be a perennial championship contender. Because like I said, you just, you you don't know how things are going to work out, but you know, it's, it's nice to hear at least that, I wouldn't say the money isn't any object, but you know, they, they don't have to worry about, how much they're spending on procuring talent or reshaping this part of the organization or that part of the organization or this coach or this executive and so on and so forth. You know, they can just focus on, you know, as Sandy Alderson 
put it, they just focus on the talent, you know, that they're acquiring. Um, and then the associated costs become secondary. So I think that's what, you know, they're saying all the right things. Um, you know, it's, there's been nothing but positivity, nothing about why they can't do something. And only, you know, you only hear things about you know what they can do. So um, that in and of itself is, you know, is something to be excited about because for years you've always, seen why the Mets or read about or heard about why the Mets can't do things. And so I think those days are behind us, at least right now. Right. And you mentioned Sandy Alderson, the former GM, was brought back in Cohen's first real move. And the original plan was to hire a president of baseball. It seemed that the original plan was to hire a president of baseball operations as well as a GM under Alderson. But due to various circumstances, it appears that Alderson will take on the president of baseball operations role as it stands now. And they've shifted their gear toward a GM search. And he mentioned yesterday about a half dozen guys have been interviewed. So what names have you heard? And if you were the Mets, who would you, who would your number one target be? Well, they, they've kept their cards close to the vest, you know, and every time it seems that, you know, something gets out, you know, Steve Cohen debunks it on Twitter. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, they're, they're Sandy. One thing I can tell you about Sandy um, just in his, you know, in his previous role with the Mets is that he was always, you know, he always tiptoed around all of these things. He never really let a lot of, a lot of information get out except what you need to know. And in this case, you know, yesterday he said, um, you know, we're, we can't seem to find a president of baseball ops right now. So we're just going to move forward without one. Um, I personally think, you know, if you, if you listen to him speak, you know, and, you know, you read the tea leaves around the industry. I think he's keeping the seat warm. I don't think that this is a permanent situation where they're not going to have a president of baseball operations. I mean, you know, when you think about Sandy's role, you know, coming in as the president of the Mets, um, that's kind of like the, it sounds to me like that's the, that's the old fashioned GM where, um, you know, he was, he or she, I guess, you know, was responsible for more than just um, baseball. You know, they're responsible for all aspects of the team. So um, that's the way modern organizations are built now, where you have the president who's responsible for the entire, kind of like the CEO, and then he or she would hire, um, you know, that president and they build that baseball ops department around that president. But, you know, for whatever reason, he just couldn't find the candidate that he was looking for. You know, he made it clear. I think he was pretty transparent about it yesterday when he said, you know, the teams, uh, organizations are not willing to, to let their you know, premium front office guys or gals go. And, um, you know, there's, so there's no reason to hire the wrong person for that role. So, like I said, I think he's keeping that seat warm. You know, Theo Epstein has made, has made it clear he's taking the year off and, you know, in a year, maybe a year from now, no matter what happens in 2020, you know, I could see his name resurfacing in for some sort of, you know, higher end role with the Mets. I think it's going to be, you know, maybe bigger than a president role if he were to come to this organization, because that's just what it sounds like he wants. He doesn't just want a, a um, parallel, you know, a, a, a lateral move. He wants something that positions him bigger. Um, I'm sorry, I said the president of the Mets, I meant president of baseball operations, probably wants something bigger than that, something that, you know, maybe he would take that role for the first one or two years, but, you know, maybe he would succeed someone like Sandy Alderson, and I'm just speculating at this point, succeed Sandy Alderson, you know, as the team president itself. So, you know, time will tell. 
Um, but that's what it sounds like. You know, he's just waiting for the right person to come, come along, and that person hasn't come along yet. You can speculate all you want because that fired me up thinking about Theo Epstein <laughs> coming to Queens. So I love that. That was actually my follow-up question, so I'm glad you touched on it. Let's work. Uh, let's keep working our way down the organization. So Alderson yesterday did confirm that Luis Rojas will stay on as manager for the 2021 season. And do you? Th- how do you think, in your opinion, Rojas did last year? And were you surprised that they kept him on? Or is that more due to the uncertainty of the season as a whole and he kind of didn't get a fair shot last year with a shortened season? Do you think that it was justified? Yeah, I think it was justified. I, I mean, look, you know, we we all saw some of the rookie mistakes um, that took place. I also think he was dealt a bad hand. You know, he had you know, very little work with in the starting rotation. The bullpen was pretty much hit or miss, mostly miss. You know, there were times when it didn't matter what button he pressed. It was always the wrong button. Um, you know, I, I think he you know, owns and bears a lot of the responsibility for, um, you know, the consequences of mismanagement. But, you know, like I said, you know, typically when the team is bad, the manager gets blamed. When the team is good, you know, the manager doesn't get any credit. So I do think that he deserves another chance. You know, he's very, very well respected in in that room. Um, A lot of those players sort of came up with him at their side. So, they all know him, and I think right now with the seismic shift at the top of the organization, um, continuity is key you know, for the players at that level of the organization. And so I think it's it's not surprising. It's not um, undeserved. Um, and so it makes too much sense to keep him around rather than let him go and start fresh at that level and find a, a GM, his, his or her staff, mm-hmm a manager, his or her staff, you know, it's too much in, you know, less in just over two and a half months in just over two months before spring training is supposed to start. So I think this is perfectly fine at this point to have Rojas come back next year. And you mentioned starting pitching at the beginning of that answer. And you were, you're right. It was a, it was an off year for the Mets. I mean, for a team that relies on starting pitching has kind of made that their, their identity the past few years, for various reasons, COVID and injury-related, it just wasn't in the cards. But one bright spot was David Peterson. You obviously have the ace at the top with Jacob deGrom. What are the long-term plans with Marcus Stroman and Noah Syndergaard? Do do you think the Mets view them both as long-term building block pieces? Um, I, I don't – that's a good question. Um, I don't know that Stroman ever fit that criteria. Um but certainly, you know, if you look back over the last almost nine seasons now, right? It's been about nine seasons. He came, probably eight, eight seasons. He came in the trade for R.A. Dickey, uh, Syndergaard, that is, for, in, in the trade for R.A. Dickey at the end of um, the 2012 season. They traded high on Dickey after he won the Cy Young mm-hmm. Award. Um, you know, he's coming off Tommy John surgery. He's coming off, you know, a couple of seasons, you know, especially in 2019 when things didn't go so well, you know, there, he was mysteriously giving up a lot of contact, you know, and with that kind of stuff, when you're throwing hundred miles an hour with a 93 mile an hour slider, you should be missing more bats than you're finding. And, um, you know, I, maybe some of that could be con- uh, attributed to, um, a diminishment in his elbow, which ultimately led to the Tommy John surgery. But right now that's a big, the big issue with, with Noah, he's entering his walk year. 
he's not going to pitch a full year no matter what. You know, he's probably not even going to be ready until um, sometime in June or July. So he's really, you know, you're looking at him as a second-half piece no matter what. And having not pitched for the better part of two years at that point, you got to see what, what, what he's going to be. And I know a lot of fans are saying, well, you know, they should ink, you know, Syndergaard to a long-term deal. I don't think there's any GM in baseball that would ever do that at this point. That's mm-hmm. not a knock on Syndergaard and his resume. It's just, you know, if you're going to give a guy, you know, a hundred plus million dollars, like you better be damn sure you're not getting damaged goods. And so I think the Mets need to see, you know, how he fits and how he looks, you know, in the context of a long-term piece. I mean, I think that's just being fair to the process. As for Stroman, um, like I said, that's a good question. I would have, if you had asked me that question a year ago, I would have said it would certainly make a lot of sense to um, sign him to a long-term deal. He's a New York guy. He's got a proven track record. Um, you know, he's you know he's obviously pitched on the big stage in the World Baseball Classic, and um, you know he he seems to have the right attitude for a winning team. You know, like he's a winner, if you will. And I would you know venture to say that there might have been some interest on the Stroman side a year ago to sign a long-term deal, but obviously, you know, nothing happened. And, you know, he hasn't even pitched, you know, since, you know, right. I, you know, I gathered that a year ago. So um, that doesn't mean, you know, they won't sign him to a long-term deal. I don't think that's going to happen this winter. There are too many other things to do though. So again, you know, you kind of have to see, you know, where he is after not pitching for a year, you know, he's, you know, a six inning, he's really a six inning guy, you know, so, you know, he's really going to be, you know, long-term at this stage of his career, mid-rotation piece anyway, on a in a great rotation. So, you know, is does he fit that criteria um, along with DeGrom? No, probably not, but that doesn't mean he won't be here for the next five or six years. A couple more questions regarding players currently on the team. Alderson said they're going to wait on a Michael Conforto extension, possibly begin talks in spring training. Do you consider him a building block? He seems like the model of consistency. He was coming off a very strong shortened season, but would you want to strike while the value's hot? Is he going to outplay the contract? It seems like now that with Cohen as your owner, there should be no player that can outplay the contract. Money shouldn't be an issue. So do you see that eventually getting done? Yeah, um, I do. Um, I, I think you know, he's, he's someone who's been very vocal about wanting to stay here long term. You know, it gets it's it's getting harder to sign him because a year from now he'll be a free agent. You know, and he's you know he, I I don't want to say he's had an inconsistent um, run in his career because I, I disagree with that notion, but I still think he has yet to reach that full potential. You saw, I think, you know, that he was headed in that direction over the short sprint this past season. You know, like you said, he's a consistent middle of the order piece. You know, he's been steady, he's been dependable. You know, and you know, as we saw this year, now he's starting to use um, all sides, all, you know, all parts of the field, you know, rather than just being pull happy. And that's a notable adjustment that he said that he's set out to make this year. So, and you saw the results. You saw, you know, a 330 capable hitter, you know, with, you know, with that kind of swing and that approach going the other way. So, I do think they should and eventually will sign him to a long-term contract. It should definitely be on their off-season agenda. Maybe not something for today. You know, right now they need to focus on the front office right. and, you know, getting, you know, other free agents into the fold. Um, but, you know, certainly, like you said, maybe that's a project for spring training. And I think that would be a good time, um, you know, a good capper 
to what is hopefully going to be a very productive offseason for them, you know, not just with the major league roster, but, you know, organization wide, you know, Sandy talks a lot about this. This isn't just about, you know, pouring money into free agency. This is about pouring money into, you know, their player development into draft, um, into the, into um, the international um, free agents, into their structure, you know, the organization structure making investments there. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do. He made it clear yesterday, and you know, Conforto's part of that. I have one more question before we get to some moves, some possible moves the Mets can make this offseason. I got to ask Michael about one of the most perplexing guys in this roster for me, Ahmed Rosario. The guy was a top five prospect in baseball. I don't understand how some fans have already ready to get rid of him. How has he really fallen off the cliff this much compared to where people thought he'd be at this point of his career? And I think the other thing you have to think about is. Andres Jimenez was one of the few bright spots, another middle infielder last year, and their top prospect, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing this, but Ronnie Mauricio, I believe, is their mm-hmm. top prospect, mm-hmm. and he's another middle infielder. So is it possible that Rosario could get – the biggest reason he could be a trade piece is if there's some actual talent behind him. Could they possibly try him in center field? I know they've tried him in the outfield in the past. What do you think the ultimate plan with him is? Well, I don't – the, to answer your center field question, I, I, I don't think that's in his immediate future. You know, it's not, you know, I think, you know, those days with the Mets playing, you know, just trying other people in other positions, you know, trying to fit square pegs in around holes. I think those days are behind them. They don't, they're not in a financial position to where they're forced to do that anymore. You know, where they have to, you know, hold on to a player because of, um, you know, there's, he was, he he's a highly touted prospect or the ceiling, you know, is and always will be high, you know, at some point, you know, especially with, you know, salary arbitration, you know, with these guys getting, making, making them expensive and you have to evaluate, you know, how, how that fits. Even if resource, even if financial resources are no longer an issue, you still don't want to be, you know, Stephen Matz isn't, is another one of the, another example along those lines. You know, you don't want to pay a guy, you know, Three, four, five, six, seven million dollars through arbitration, and you know get one million in return from them. So, you know, as for for in the case of Ahmed Rosario, you know, you're right. You know, he he was their top. Pro, he was baseball's top prospect for a long time. But and and I don't think the issue is that he um, has underperformed those expectations as much as he hasn't made the incremental progress that you'd like to see out of a prospect, out of a, out of a player, they've invested a lot of time and resource and touted through the media, um, the way they have, you know? And so, um, I don't think, you know, if it's not as if they're going to non-tender him, it's, you know, if he's on the team, he's going to be their shortstop. Um, but it, you would have to think that time is getting short for him, you know, just, just, just in terms of showing that he can be that elite, player at a premium position and look you know you're not asking him to be francisco lindor or carlos correa at this point but i think you're asking him to have more than a 275 or 280 or 300 on exactly. base percentage exactly. um, and you're walk asking once him in a while. to right i mean you're you're exa- asking him to evolve his approach at the plate you're asking him to you know when they say you know this is how you attack the ball in the zone to not have spaghetti feet, you know, in, yeah. in the batter's box, as we see, you know, he's got, I, I, that's what I, that's what I see when I watch him, you know, he's, 
he wildly swings at pitches and his legs are out of control. And that these are the mistakes he was making, you know, in the minor leagues when he first came up, you know, to the majors. And these things have not consistently improved. Now he has shown glimpses of progress, i.e., last year in the second half. That was the player that they always expected mm-hmm. him to be. And you know, you you looked at his approach, you know, his and his. The way he attacked pitches, his his batting stance, and his you know his controlled his controlled and measured approach to hitting, and that's what they expected him to be, which he regressed again, you know, for the sixty game stretch this year. You know, he showed that similar progress a year before in the second half, but it's been more um, I would say um, negative, more more he's been more on a negative track than he has been on a positive. You know, every time. You know, you say, okay, that's it. This isn't going to work. He he turns into that player again. And so, you know, I think they're going to be patient if he's here. But, you know, if there's an opportunity to get Lindor, um, I think, you know, all 28 clubs would look to try and get Lindor, regardless of who's at. You know, there are very few um, players that you would, you know, that would prevent you from getting Francisco Lindor. Um, But, you know, if they don't get Lindor at any point, you know, whether it's through trade or free agency, you know, that doesn't mean the clock isn't going to stop ticking with, um, with Ahmed Rosario. He lost his job to Andres Jimenez already this year. So, mm-hmm. you know, the clock is definitely ticking with Rosario. All right, Michael, so you kind of led me into what I want to talk about now. We mentioned that Alderson is on record saying, and I think we both would agree, that the Mets are more than one or two players away. This is an organization that was kind of ripped to shreds by Brody Van Wagren the past few years, and it's organizational from the top down in terms of Major League all the way down to the minors. He kind of ran it like I run a video game where you don't really care about the future because you're not going to play six seasons there. You're just going to try to win one, and obviously those moves didn't work out. One move, again, I know I keep saying this, but one more question before we get to actual potential targets. One move that certainly did not work out for him was the Robinson Cano-Edwin Diaz trade. But with Cano, like a, like a gift from God, being uh, suspended this whole year, freeing up money and a position, and with DH, I think most people think it's going to stick around in the NL, which I'm in favor of. Do you see that as a possible position for Pete Alonzo and I think he is when you talk about the heart and soul and the face of a franchise I think Alonzo can be that I know he's not a perfect hitter and he's certainly not a perfect fielder but just the overall energy he brings to a game that could sometimes get monotonous he brings a lot but I think Dominic Smith's another guy that needs every day at bats and due to the fact that the roster has been so mismanaged there's a lot of guys just playing out of positions Dom Smith is not an outfielder He's a well-established first baseman. So do you think that's a possibility if the DH sticks around that they can try to shift Alonzo to a full-time DH role? I, I don't think ultimately it's good for either player to be the full-time designated hitter. But you're right. You know, Dominic Smith, you know, first off, there's no disputing Dominic Smith is a superior defensive player. And that was always the case. It was a case you know, in the minors. It was a case last year. It's going to be the case in 2021. But I, I don't think it's good um, for Alonzo if he's just the full-time designated hitter. Um, I think you're going to see with the Mets, certainly, um, it, assuming there is a DH, and I agree, especially after listening to Sandy yesterday, and he's you know tied into the rules committee, as we all know. Um, it sure sounds like there's going to be a DH. I, I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't sign my name to that, but you know, I've listened to Sandy long enough <laughs> to know when 
you know, to know how to read the, to know how to read his tea leaves. And so I would say coming off of what he said yesterday, it's fair to say that, well, it's a good bet. There will be the D there will be a DH, but and the Mets are fortunate to be a team where they can have multiple or different DHs on any given day. Now that doesn't mean, you know, there should be a stat that, that, that means that there shouldn't be a static DH. I think it's going to depend on the matchups. It's going to depend on health. It's going to depend on the schedule you know, and you know all those factors. You know, tied in. You know, tied in. You know, meshed into you know a ball, if you will, um, because like I said, you know, you don't want to just have Pete Alonso, you know, going up and mashing the ball. You know, his value will be defined on his ability to grow as a defensive player. Um, and there are very few career quality DHs. You can probably count them on both hands. Mm-hmm. You know, since 1974. So um, I don't. I think that would adversely affect his growth and ultimately affect his productivity. Um, First base is important to him. And I think after hitting 53 home runs in the last full season of Major League Baseball, he's owed the benefit of the doubt. Agreed. Um, And, you know, the good news there is that, you know, Dominic Smith, when Pete's in the field, Dominic Smith can be the DH or, you know, he he can play left field, you know, a a couple days a week too. So, you know, that's one thing Dominic Smith is, has has sh- you know has has shown and demonstrated you know he was basically bench ridden you know and uh, teetering on going back to the minors when he was obviously a major league player but he embraced that that bench role that part time role you know and grew into a guy like I said you know he, he could play you know if you ask him to he can play left field a couple days a week which has made him a more versatile made him a more complete player and the attitude to me more than anything is for him especially you know, has allowed him to evolve into what we saw in 2020, which was, you know, arguably, you know, one of the best players in the league. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it's not necessarily, you know, it shouldn't be assumed, I should say, that if there's a TH, Dominic Smith is the first baseman. He's going to be a first baseman. Pete Alonso is going to be a first baseman. Got it. But they're both going to be DHs over the course of a long season. That is fair. And, Michael, I'm trying not to be – now, there's plenty of reasons I hate Yankee fans, but one of the main reasons I hate them is it seems like every time there's a free agent, they think that they're going to New York. So I'm trying not to be that type of fan with this newfound owner with the Mets. It's tough not to, though, with the amount of potential that we have. But we also don't want to spend like drunken sailors. I've seen you use that phrase on your Twitter. But I've also seen you go, you know, not in arguments, but disagreements with fans that want them to sit back and try to build the organization like take three years to really rebuild screw that so i need you to tell me some names that you would go target to me let's start with pitching all right so before we get to the actual flaws of the team let's start with pitching is it trevor bauer or bust in your opinion you know (laughs) um yes i think they agreed need to sign I, i think they need to sign trevor bauer but Make no mistake. And Trevor Bauer was obviously he was a Cy Young winner in 2020. Um, that doesn't come without issues, mm-hmm. you know, that we all know about, which have been well documented at this point. Um, yeah, you know, wait, I'm sorry to interrupt real quick. Do you? Th- you're right. I would agree with that. And do you think there's any concern? And I know you mentioned uh, you seem to be more of a Stroman guy than I am. I think when you talk about winning, he certainly makes it known that he has been a winner. But I think he is a me, me, me guy. 
but you obviously would be would know more than I would being around the team. I, do, do you think there's any concern putting both those guys in the same clubhouse? Um, I think there should be a general concern with putting Trevor Bauer in any clubhouse <laughs> just because he's kind of earned this reputation. Right. And that doesn't mean I wouldn't, if I'm the Mets, I don't sign him. If I'm the Mets, I do sign him. But, you know, it's like with Cespedes. Like, there was no question, and there's nobody on this planet that can um, deny, deny, you know, wanting the Mets to sign him to the long-term deal that he got. Um, and I would say the same about Bauer. I think Bauer will ultimately be good for the organization. You know, he's, I don't want to, I don't want them to make this sound like he's bad, right. you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, when you're on TV and your manager is coming out to take you out of the game and you turn and throw the ball over the center field fence, like, right. I mean, among other things, you know, that is, can't go without, say, go without being said when you're talking about giving a guy a hundred plus million dollars. So, you know, these issues, you know, Sandy is well aware of them, but I don't think that, you know, I think he's, he's shown and proven that, you know, these things won't stop him from signing premium talent. Um, so yes, I do think that they should pursue um, and make sure that they sign Trevor Bauer. They need mm -hmm. him for this rotation. They need the personality for this roster. I mean, he's a, he's not, this isn't a bad guy. You know, he's not a bad guy. He's not a cancer. Um, he's just, you know, colorful. Mm -hmm. And that can be good for an organization as much as some of the things that we've seen and heard might concern us. So um, I don't think he's the perfect pitcher by any means. I don't think this is, you know, Garrett Cole, you right. know, for instance, where, and I don't think Garrett Cole is the perfect pitcher either, but I don't think the situation is as cut and dry, you know, as mm -hmm. some, as pursuing like, someone like Garrett Cole assuming money isn't the problem. You know, this there there are there there is a history here that needs to be addressed and those concerns need to be alleviated, you know, for the Mets. You know, money can't buy a person can't change a personality. Right. It can just sign the talent. You know, so they have to be sure that, you know, you know, Trevor Bauer might would be a positive influence on the organization and that his behavior wouldn't be a detriment. Um and if they're good with that. I'm good with that as, you know, a fan. But the Mets don't need, you know, going into this era, I will say this, the Mets don't need um, any more negative press. They don't need negative stories um, shadowing any progress within the organization. So they have to be sure that Trevor Bauer doesn't do that to them. Um, those are the concerns I have. Now, from a talent perspective, you know, he'd be a number two or a number one on any on any roster and he's going to get his money. He's going to sign with somebody. You know, this stuff isn't going to be, you know, that big of a deal in the end. But, you know, this is New York. And, you know, if you sneeze, there's going to be a column about it. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, right. they have to be sure they're, um, you know, they're getting the right person for their organization, given the state of affairs. That's all I'm saying. I would agree. I think what else it would do is it would just signify to the rest of the league that the Mets are – legit contenders and they're not just floating around anymore but I, I do agree with everything you just said and I know we've already taken up too much of your time but I do just have a couple more questions no, if you're okay perfect so I've seen I've seen you mention two names that again they're the top of their class of positions of free agents and I totally agree with that but I just I think I've been so shell-shocked from past Mets contracts like you people are talking about George Springer obviously 
when I first heard the name, I was like, oh, man, I would love that. But the more you dive in, he's in his early 30s. How many more years can he really play center field? Same thing with Rio Muto, best hitting catcher in baseball by far. But how many years can you commit to a guy like that and expect him to keep keep up with that production, especially at those two positions, center field and catcher, two of the most important defensive positions and two positions that take a toll on your body, specifically catcher. But so, but you, to you, at least from what I've read on your Twitter, those are still two guys that you would target. Can you tell me why I shouldn't be as concerned as I am? Well, you should be. Okay. I'm not going to tell right. you you can't. You shouldn't be concerned. Um, you, know, um, you know, in free agency, you're paid for what you did in the past, and your value at the position, you know, the, the demand on the, the, the supply versus demand on the position. So um, in the case of you know, center field and catcher, there aren't too many quality um, premium players who play those positions predominantly. Um, and George Springer, you know, at least as of this date, you look at the back of the baseball card, JT Realmuto, the same, you know, at his position, you know, they, um, they are the you know among the best, if not the best, in Realmuto's case, you know, at their position, um, and their premium positions, and so, you know, it's important for the Mets to um, address those positions in a well-rounded manner. And when you look at someone like Springer, again, this is today, November twentieth, or whatever today, November twenty-third, whatever today's date is, right. Um, these are among the best, if not the best players at their position. Um, but to your point, like I said, you're paid for what you did before. That doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. So um, you ask very good questions, challenging questions um, about you know, Springer's long-term viability in center field. You ask a very valid question about JT Realmuto's long-term vi- viability behind the plate. Um, it's sort of the price of admission. Right. I mean, right. that's that's the way I see it. You know that you, you, you brought in the brought up another excellent point about the Mets always seeming to roll snake eyes on free free agent contracts. <laughs> and I think part of the issue there and you know, one contract that comes that comes to mind where they didn't roll snake eyes was Carlos Beltran's long term contract. True. And, you know, really, to me, why they did so well on that contract, you know, aside from the money, they signed him at age 27. You know, these when you talk about Real Muto, when you talk about Springer, when you talk about. You know, guys who are 30, those are otherwise known as second generation free agents um, where they're better. They, they have um, fewer quality years ahead than they do behind. And um, especially for someone like Real Muto, who, you know, is a catcher, it, there's a lot of wear and tear. You know, it may look great today, but two or three years from now, we may be singing a different tune. Um, and we probably will be singing a different tune. Um, I think in a case like Springer, it's it's easier to move him to a corner outfield spot mm-hmm. and give him um, some rest, some R&R, if you will, you know, with the designated hitter. Again, assuming the designated hitter is here to stay. Right. Um, and you can do the same with Raul Muto, but, you know, I don't think um, anyone's beating the, the race of time with a catcher. You know, there are very few that maintain their high-level productivity after age 33. Very, very few. Michael, should there be I, one I, that comes to mind though that does ahead, is Yadier Molina, who happens to be a free agent, who I could. Nope, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. Um, so you bring up two very good and challenging questions that I don't have the answer to. You know, it's they're they're fair questions. Right, and really, all I'm doing is preparing myself to say that 
to other people when the Mets don't sign these two. Because I'm going to forget all about those two things when we do sign them. However, before we let you go, and I don't know if you're a big predictions guy, but just go with your gut feeling here. Tell me three guys that are not currently on the Mets roster that will be on. doesn't have to be huge names. could be maybe some under the radar names or big names. But I need three names to get excited about that will be on the Mets roster. And if one of them is Francisco Lindor, I'm going to take my computer and just whip it across the room in excitement. <laughs> um. Well, I'm not a big prediction guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you seem very level-headed. That's I, I why I want to force a long it out time of you. Ago on making predictions, but um, I mean, I don't know if it's good news or not. I don't think they're going to sign Real Moto. Okay. Um, I, I think a, a second-tier catcher is more likely, but I, I never really know who. I, I'm going to pass on the catcher situation. That's fair. Um, I do think that. Um, Trevor Bauer and George Springer are very much in the cards for sure. Um, I think these are two guys who would transform the organization in oh, yeah. so many different ways. Um, as for the as for a third guy, I don't want to sign my name to Lindor. I'm not comfortable doing that. Fair, <laughs> fair, fair. Hey, actually, you know, um, I'll give you those two. I'll okay. give you those two because it... those two are I, I feel pretty good about. Okay, and then my actual last question. I'm sorry, my real last question. How from what? So I don't know if this is true or not. But one thing I heard is that the relief pitcher market won't be over flooded with contracts because that's not something that a lot of teams can put the money in with this COVID situation. And from what I've heard, the one of the few teams in Major League Baseball that should not be too affected by the COVID situation because of the net worth Cohen has is the Mets. So should they be looking to, again, expand on their relief pitchers? Now, they have Diaz, who some say turned a corner. I still don't trust him at all. And Familia, I think, is past his prime. And Batantis, I don't think, was the guy we thought we were getting, but he re up. So how concerned should they still be about their bullpen? Very. Yes, um, I agree. Yes. You know, I. You know, that's one thing you know, the Mets have not been very good at over the last 15 years is building a quality and dependable bullpen. It doesn't seem to matter who the GM is, you know, whether it was Omar, Sandy, or um, Brody. They whiffed on their bullpen pieces big time over those years. But so, yeah, I mean, I do think they should be focused um, really on the on the middle to late game bullpen. Um, I I agree with your position on Edwin Diaz. Um, He's very difficult to trust um, in that role. But I think, you know, as much as I've called for it over the last year, you know, I do to for for him to be moved into the eighth inning role. Um, I think it's going to be his job to lose again this winter, um, this, this spring. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think guys like Brad hand, um, Liam Hendricks, you know, these are guys who should be, you know, on their radar and, you know, quite honestly, you know, aside from maybe some big rotation pieces like Bauer, you know, I think the biggest impact could come in the bullpen this winter. You know, it's, it's always, you know, they're not the sexiest names that are out there. Yep. Um, but the games are won and lost in the seventh through ninth inning. Look no further than the Mets record, excuse me, <laughs> over the last couple yeah. of years um, when, you know, leading or trailing after nine, after seven innings. So um, I think the biggest impact for the Mets could come in the bullpen market this year, especially with, you know, guys like Brad Hand getting, um, you know, entering the free agent market. You know, this is, you know, someone that fits Sandy's MO, I wouldn't be surprised if he's a Met within a month, you know, surprised not a Met already. 
Um, wow, I love that. But, um, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, they can definitely make strides. And, you know, if they can't make the improvements they need to make in, in the rotation, you know, you can certainly fortify the rotation by shortening the dependency on them. You know, I, I always look at the Yankees. I know you hate the Yankees, but <laughs> the Yankees do a great job of shortening the game. Yep. Why? Because they always have a stellar bullpen. They have sh- a shutdown bullpen inning seven through nine. And when that bullpen, when that bullpen leaks, the Yankees don't win, you know, so they always pin a lot of their hopes on and their, um, depend their dependence on the bullpen. I think they need a better balance. And I think the Mets will have a better balance, but, um, depending on how they do in the rotation this winter, I think will determine the pieces they get in the bullpen. Um, but they do need pieces for the bullpen no matter what. I agree. And Michael, I feel like I could talk to you all day. This has been so much fun. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we get started on time and we can see all these changes as soon as possible. Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Um, You know, I, I hope too that there's no delay and, you know, God willing, you know, maybe there'll be some fans in the ballpark this year and it'll be look, look a little bit like baseball, you know, for the first time in a couple of years. But uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Alrighty then. Thank you, Michael Barron. Great insight on the Mets. Now let's get to some Bills preview coming off the bye week. They're seven and three, first place in the division. More good news is that Sleeping Beauty is awake. So we got buckets back upstairs, Woo! ready to bring some juice here as we preview the Buffalo Bills and the Los Angeles Chargers. Chargers come in. Three and seven, but they're in every single ball game, just finding new and hilarious ways to lose. They have a very fun up-and-coming rookie quarterback that are blowing that is, excuse me, blowing away expectations that many have had for him. But before we get to this week, let's talk about the last five matchups that the Chargers and Bills have had. Bills have lost four straight to the Chargers, six of their last seven, dating back to 2005. Let's go back all the way to 2008, their last win versus the Chargers. Bills win 23-14 to improve to 5-1 on the year. Bill, do you remember anything significant about that game? No. I believe that was the game that the electricity went off in the stadium or something, and which meant there was no TV coverage for Lee Evans' touchdown. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that was the game. But they end up winning 23-14. They go on to lose four in a row and seven of their last eight to finish 7-9. and nine. You keep that in mind because there's a trend here. Then in 2011, December December 11th, 2011, the Bills go to San Diego, get absolutely spanked by the Chargers, 37-10. Their only touchdown, a Brian Scott fumble recovery for a touchdown. It's one of seven straight losses the Bills had, 8-9 of nine to end the season after starting 5-2 and two in their 3-0 start with Fitz. Yikes. It's- then, in 2014, they have an absolute snooze fest. I, we must have been there. I would assume, oh, yeah, we must have been there. We must have been there. The Bills lose 22-10. The Bills are 2-0 coming in, lose to Houston at the – excuse me, you lose to Houston the following week to drop to 2-2. They pull EJ, bring in Orton for a win at Detroit, but we know how that season ended. Actually, 9-7, and but a meaningless win to end the year to get a over 500 record. Then the last two are a tad more memorable and a tad more significant. Do you remember the game on November 19th, 2017, William? Yes, I do very well. That was the the, the, the very controversial polling of Tyrod Taylor, and they brought in Peterman, and I think all Bills fans know how that game went. 
54-24 in Nathan Peterman's first NFL start. They went back to Tyrod Taylor, end up making the playoffs and losing to Jacksonville in the wild card weekend. And then another first NFL start, week two of the 2018 season, coming off Peterman's disastrous performance versus Baltimore. Josh Allen gets his first start. Bills were never really in that game. I think they scored a late touchdown and make it 31-20. I was definitely at home by the end of that game. That game stunk, and I remember it was super hot out. So, and it really does seem that the Chargers have our number. I can't remember a big win. I do remember another Chargers loss that is significant in my lifetime is that was the year that Flutie went to San Diego the next year, and it was Johnson versus Flutie. Once they picked Rob Johnson to take the reins in the organization, Bills lost a tight one after John Butler and Doug Flutie left for the Chargers. So the Chargers do have our number. And I believe, tell me if I'm wrong, wasn't the – uh, the last game, the 2018 game, wasn't that the game that Vontae Davis left at the half? Yeah, I think that might have been. That's actually a great call. I think that is. That was the second game of the season. You're right. Some guy said he was at a red light in Orchard Park and looked over, and Vontae Davis was at the red light, too, during the game. I can't believe that doesn't get brought up more, that that happened. But, yeah, so it's been a tough go, but the Bills certainly come in as a heavy favorite for the first time, and I can't even tell you how long. Let's get to some keys. My first key is we just talked about the close losses this team has had. So Buffalo needs to stay composed and not to be a dork here, but trust the process. I don't care if the Chargers come out hot. I don't care if the Chargers come out and stink. Play your game because the Chargers are not a good football team. They're highly penalized. They're not composed, obviously, late with all these close losses. They have a rookie quarterback. I do not think Anthony Lynn is a good head coach. Great guy. Good offensive coordinator, good running backs coach, good leader, but I do not think he's a great head coach. So go out to a fast start. Don't give them a reason to stick around. And I don't think this is going to be a blowout. This is going to be another game that kind of comes down to a late field goal to put them away at the end. It'll be a close game, but it'll be a game that Buffalo never really feels as if they're going to lose. William, you on to your key. All right, Dan. Well, my key, uh, key number one, Dan, is – yeah, Herbert, like you said, like you alluded to earlier, has really been impressive. I mean, he's been, I think, by far and away the rookie of the year, you know, especially with Burrow going down at this point in the season. He should be the rookie of the year. You got to, he's still a rookie, okay? And he, you just got to find a way to get pressure on him. And it'll kind of lead into my matchup of the game. Um, but, you know, this is, this is a Les, Leslie Frazier, Sean McDermott game where you got to, you know, show why you are known and well-respected enough as one of the best defensive minds in the game. You have to get pressure on him. You have to scheme up some confusing looks. They've had a full bye week to prepare for, for Justin Herbert. Um, again, young quarterback, you got to be very, very smart defensively, schematically, and I think that's a coaching thing. So that's my key number one. And you are getting healthier, and with that, I think finally, and I've said this how many weeks now, I think finally we are going to see the preseason projected offensive line, which I think, in theory, will help this running game. And if it doesn't, then we have some serious problems because I like this team. I think they truly can beat any team on any given week. But if they don't get a run game, it's really going to put a lot of pressure on Josh Allen, and I think that's too much pressure in the long term. So, the Chargers are not great against the run. They've allowed the six most yards per attempt. 
They have very good edge guys, but not really any monsters in the middle. Their, their rookie Murray out of Oklahoma is still trying to find his way. They have a thumper in the middle, another linebacker, but nothing really that scares you, so they have to find a way. I don't need monster run numbers. I need them to be efficient. I need them to have one or two breakaway plays where you get a, a big chunk play. They've been non-existent the past few weeks. Singletary and Moss, I mean, they had one good game. That New England game where they were giving us the run, so we got to find a way to get the run game going. My second key, Dan, and it's becoming kind of a weekly thing for me to say, um, but Allen has to stay patient. He's got to be smart. He's got to understand his reads and be able to step up in the pocket and not just go haywire and look to run because what's going to happen in this game, Dan, is the Chargers will get pressure. Okay, We do have two good tackles that we haven't had to speak about much this year in Dawkins and Vera Williams. But at the end of the way, at the end of the day, Dan, we're talking about two all pros over on the other side of the ball in Melvin Ingram and Joey Bosa. Both guys have kind of battled injuries this year, but are both healthy right now. So there will be pressure from the edge. And to me, Allen's just got to be able to step up in that pocket. Like you said, maybe not a lot of interior pressure and be able to make some good timely throws. And that's going to lead me into my matchup of the game. And that really is the edge rushers all around. Um, from both teams, but more specifically, Joey Bosa will line up more often against the right tackle, and that's going to be Daryl Williams. And uh, Daryl Williams will be tested in this game. Will be able to control Joey Bosa. And on the other side, same thing. Melvin Ingram, most of the snaps, not all of them, will be lined up against Deion Dawkins. Dawkins has been, you know, quietly our best offensive lineman this year. Joe Biscalia just put out his his kind of his grades for players at the midseason. And, and, and Dawkins is playing at a Pro Bowl level right now. And, and this is where he will certainly be tested in this game. Melvin Ingram is a fantastic pass rusher. He's been in the league for a long time, really experienced. So that's going to be fun to watch. And it's really the same thing at the on the other side, Dan. You might get into this as well. But, you know, can we get going back to my first key, confusing, uh, confusing Herbert? Well, a lot of that is, can we get pressure? You know, can we make this game difficult for him? And that's going to come down to guys like Espinosa, Jerry Hughes, and whoever's on the edge. Yeah, I think Mario Addison and Hughes are going to have to have a game here. And I think it's going to be on the left side. It's going to be on Herbert's blind side. You got Sam Tevy as a left tackle, and their left guard, his name's Forrest Lamp. Look at, I, I don't know... I love all these offensive lineman names we're going through as we go through these weeks. For I don't listen. I don't watch a lot of Chargers offensive line film. You cannot sit here and tell me a guy named Forrest Lamp is going to be a an above average starter in this league. I'm sorry, Forrest. That's just not going to happen. So I think this is another week to see if that this niche that AJ Klein has found of late, him blitzing and being effective, can this be another week they can take advantage of that? So I think that's a great matchup. Let's move on to our bold take. My bold take is going to be that they get a huge special teams play. They had another, excuse me, the Chargers had another punt block that's back-to-back weeks. Anthony Lynn didn't fire the special teams coordinator, but reassigned him as an offensive assistant while promoting the assistant special teams coordinator. Andre Roberts has been feeling himself lately with kick returns. I think the Bills come up with a big special teams play this week. Low-key, Dan, as the kids say, low-key, Andre Roberts has been a very good bill this year. Oh, yeah. Um, My bold take is that Stephon Diggs will lead all wide receivers in in yard, you know, in fantasy points, I guess, as you may. He'll be an absolute stud this week. 
Uh, statistically, I see him going over 150 yards with 150. a touchdown. 150 yards and a score. Uh, and here's why. I, I don't know if you're going to get a healthy John Brown. He didn't practice today, Wednesday. We'll see how the week progresses for him, but he's still battling that hamstring injury. At the end of the day, we've had so much success. I think the Bills staff have looked at the film and, and over the bye week have realized, I mean, when we get this ball to Diggs, it, it's, we're very, very successful, like forcing the ball. I don't want to say the word force, but it's not forcing him the ball. It's every time we throw to him, I mean, most of the times it's completion. You cannot trust our tight ends. It's been the most disappointing position group all year. And if there's no healthy Brown, I think you're, you're going to see a very healthy dosage of uh, Stefan Diggs. I got the Bills. Again, like I said, it's going to be a closer game than one expect. I think Bass hits a late field goal to make it a two-possession game. I think the Bills go on to an 8-3 and three record by a score of 34-24. Wait, you just said 34-24? Yeah. That's my score, too. <laughs> That's good. That's good radio. I swear to God, I didn't see that. That's good. Do you think Classic agreement. 34-24 Bills. You got the buckets and Dan stamp of approval on that one. And you're hot with score predictions. You nailed last week's Thursday night game. Thursday night. Bill, listen to this. Imagine telling us this five years ago, that in 2020 the Bills are going to have a primetime game every week in the month of December. Wild times we live in. Nothing's off the table in 2020. They're going to be 8-3 and three, traveling to San Francisco for an 8-15 Monday night football start. Then they return home the following Sunday for a Sunday night tilt versus the currently undefeated Steelers. Then their game got flexed to a Saturday at 4-30 at Denver, December 19th, our good friend Shane Hurley's birthday, and the due date to our good friend Sean Dungan's baby. That's a big day. And a Bills win. Talk about the trifecta on December 19th. Holy smokes. Then we go to the dreaded New England Patriots Monday, December 28th, three days after Christmas before we wrap up in January versus the Dolphins. It's setting up. I, I, this could be a look-ahead game, Bill. I, ho I hope it's not. I think it's going to be another Buffalo win. And like, we, like Bill said, stamp of approval, take it to the bank, 34-24. So now we'll kick it over to a very fun segment we had with our wonderful fiancés, the Mount Rushmore of the best things about Thanksgiving. With Thanksgiving approaching us, you are listening to the Buckets and Dan Thanksgiving episode, so we thought we'd bring back one of our favorite segments, a Mount Rushmore. And we'd like to thank our friends from Mount Rushmore 716 for posting this. However, we do not have them as guests. We have our significant others on as our other two contestants. So my wonderful fiance, Cassie, thank you for hopping on the pod again. Hello there. That is not how loud you talked in the beginning. You got to talk louder. Hi, guys. There you go. All right. And Emily, Mrs. Buckets, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well. Buckets, sir, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having us today. All right. So here are our rules. It is the Mount Rushmore of favorite things about Thanksgiving, a very broad topic so we can be as creative as you'd like. Mrs. Buckets, before the 
episode is asking, does it have to be things that actually involve Thanksgiving Day? Absolutely not. It's anything involving Thanksgiving. So our favorite things about Thanksgiving. Let's kick it off. I believe, Cass, you did our order. Do you remember what the order was? I believe it was Emily... Me, Bill, and then you. So that's correct. Just for our new listeners, it's snake order. You get four selections, and then we post on Twitter, and we see what our fans and our our listeners think is the best overall team. So we're talking about our favorite things about Thanksgiving. Emily, you kick us off. Go ahead. My number one pick is going to be football. There's nothing better than just sitting with my brother on the couch all day and just watching football game after football game and taking mid mid afternoon naps in between the games. That's only one thing though. Yeah. Yeah. Just football, just football. Very good. So football is your pick. Yeah. It's always nice seeing the lions playing a nice 12, seven game to start the day. I don't know why they feel the need to be on every year, and it's going to be another barn burner between them and the Texans this year. <laughs> but I would say that one of my favorite memories of my life so far is watching that Bills game last year versus Dale. So it's a, it's a great pick, a, a consensus number one, I'd say, and I, I think that's a great pick. I am up with the number two pick. I'm going to be a little more wholesome. It's kind of it's really telling that Emily went football first. I'm going to go with family. We go with family, and one thing that I I am upset I'm not going to be able to see my brother who's not flying in from New York with his partner John. I'm not going to see any of my extended family, which stinks because it's usually one of the few times a year where families come together. So I guess it just shows the amount of heart I have compared to Emily that I'm going to go with family with my first selection. Bill, you're now on the clock. All right, so here's my question, and here's you know I'm going to open up a can of worms that we probably should have talked about before we aired this, but I mean. Can I take the whole cake with just saying food, or are we going, you got to be separate food items? So I would say you have to be a little more specific than just food. Okay. So with that being said, um, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with not working. It's a holiday. And, yeah, very uh, good. Yeah. A holiday. All right. So get the day off. Okay. Very good. So you're going to go with the day off. So not having to work. So how, how about we, we chalk that up to um, a mini vacation that, that way we can talk, yeah. encompass that when, when you're a kid in school or for us, that's still work in the school setting as teachers, we also get the extended break of well, Thursday. So can I, so I'm calling them like Thanksgiving weekend, Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah. So Thanksgiving break, if you will. I like that. I like that a lot. Cause usually those days are jam packed. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Very good. So now we get the the quiet one of the group. Make sure to speak up here, Cass. Back-to-back picks, Miss Wagrin. Go ahead. All right. First pick will be Black Friday deals. Black Friday is very good. I always tend to get all of my Christmas shopping done in one weekend. So Black Friday deals, you get the best deals, you get the most deals. Uh, So I'm going to do that for my first pick. Good one. And my second pick, this is, uh, I think, pretty spot on for the times we are in right now. My second pick is going to be watching and not participating in family members getting in arguments over politics. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Very, um, yeah, very on brand for right now. Very good. Very good. I like those. You're going to get you're going to get some votes there, Cass. Those are two good picks. Two good picks. Working our way back toward one. Let's go with Mr. Buckets. Yeah, and uh, Dan, you know, 
this is an iconic day in Buffalo, New York. Oh, you're such a piece of garbage for taking <laughs> and I'm, this. And I'm going to go with the turkey trot. Oh, good, good. It's not I thought, sorry, I thought that's what you are going with something else. Yeah, the turkey trot. And you know what, Bill? You get you get your classic your classic argument. Are you are you a turkey bowl guy or are you a turkey trot guy? But either way, Buffalo's getting out there and we're being active. You're going with the turkey trot. How many turkey trots have you participated in, Bill? I think four or five at this point. Four or five. And I I think the our fa- the fans of this show would like to hear about the turkey trot that you attempted our junior year in college. I'll I'll tell that story where we were about to leave for break maybe the following um following week or whatever, but Cortland hosted their own little turkey trot that met at Park Center. It was, no, it was the apple run. The, oh, is that what so that was in the spring. All right, then we don't need to. Then we don't even need to bring it up. Uh, you, you can talk about right, it. Well, I thought it was a turkey trot. You're right. It was an apple run in the spring. Either way, it was a 5K, and it was meeting down at Park Center. I would say about maybe a, a mile and a quarter down, straight shot, right down. That's what, what street was that? Clayton? What street was that? No, Tompkins. Tompkins. Yeah, right down Tompkins to Park Center from our apartment, and I was getting ready. I think to go to a night class, and you were strapping up your your Nike running shoes like what are you doing and you're like I'm gonna do the the apple run and I was like the 5k and you go yeah and I looked at you and thought are you sure and I said well what are you doing right now and you said well I'm gonna jog down there kind of as a warm-up now this is keep in mind I was getting ready to leave to go to my class and you said yeah so I said all right dude good luck I didn't leave the apartment yet, so this must have been less than eight minutes later. You came chugging back up the steps, out of breath, red face, saying, dude, I think I got to go to the hospital. And I said, why? What's the matter? And you said, I'm having trouble breathing, like something's not right. And I said, well, what's the problem? And you go, my chest hurts. It's burning. And I said, do you think you could just be out of shape? And you just stared at me, shrugged your shoulders, and go, well, maybe, yeah, and needless to say, Bill did not partake in the apple run, but that's one of my favorite stories from college. But, yeah, so you're going to go turkey trot. I thought you were going to go something else. I'm going to go with a little off the board, and I, it might get some backlash here, but I'm the run running it, so I'm not going to get denied. I'm going to go with that weekend being the weekend of the greatest night in Buffalo. No. So, so I'm going to go with that weekend is the world's largest disco. So I'm gonna go but with the that world. Literally has nothing. That's Thanksgiving weekend every week, Cass. It's not. But I feel like I got that with the with the Thanksgiving break call. That was yeah. just getting off of work. You said. What does what does the disco have to do with Thanksgiving? Well, it has to do with the Max fact Cass. that it's every Saturday after Thanksgiving. I think we should put this up to a poll between the four of us here, and if three people vote. No, then that doesn't count. Unfortunately, it's already written down, Cass. So I, it's already it written down. It can be written down. down all at once, but it can also be erased. <laughs> I believe we're back up to the number one pick. Emily, oh you go back to back wow. here. Wow. Wow. I feel blessed. Um, my second pick is going to be classic stuffing. Oh, good one. Yeah. Really nothing better. Nothing. Um, and then my third pick, very torn on this one, but I'm going to go with Pre-COVID, obviously can't be done this year, but Thanksgiving Eve drinking festivities. Oh, yeah, you would, youngin. Together with friends, playing a lot of beer ball, and just getting wasted. Yes, that that was always a great great trip to Malone's or the Jake the night before Thanksgiving. 
And I, I'm going to tie right into that because I'm going to go with – it is my pick again, right? Yeah. I'm going to go with Turkey Bowl, so the opposite of what Bill went earlier. And what's nice about our Turkey Bowl is we – the one we've done, the uh, what is it, the, probably the past 10 years or so, be, before all this COVID stuff, a little less than 10 years, we would get together, donate some money to the Brian Dugan Memorial Turkey Bowl, our former teacher that passed away, that we would drop off some cash to their family right before the holiday season, and we made an event of it. We'd do a draft where we'd dress up and take pictures and post them and then put out a poll which team's going to win and then it'd be a double elimination tournament the next day that really was always just single elimination because the second team never really wanted to play again so we'd get up early do that but that night consisted of a lot of alcohol consumption and that always was a good time so I'm going to go with the turkey bowl with my third pick Bill yeah and uh, do a little rewind uh, back to Emily's pick you know talking about um, you know the Wednesday night the, the pregame festivities I mean you know, her being still a young cat, uh, it, it, and, and they call it amateur night for a reason. I'll say that. And, you know, for people like Cass and us us three, it's like we're lucky to get out to McNulty Hall at St. Andrews and do a little bingo. Right. Day. Yeah. Um, but with that being said, uh, I think this one's a no-brainer at this point. I like the value here. And that's leftovers. Leftovers. Oh. Very good. And Emily is not happy. They must have had a consensus big board. My list. Nope, I had that down. <laughs> All right, leftovers. That's a great pick. That's a good pick. Um, Cass, you're up with your back-to-back to wrap up your team. Okay, uh, an after-dinner nap. Very good one. I Very good one. love an after-dinner nap. Um, and then my last pick will be um, I was going to do leftovers. Um, I guess my favorite part of Thanksgiving is it's probably the only day where it's acceptable to have multiple dinners. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just a huge eat fest. Very good. Like it's completely acceptable. You can go if you have, you know, step families, you have significant other families. It is perfectly okay for you to go to three different houses and eat an entire meal all three times. Yeah. I'd love to know your, uh, buckets and Keem's thought on this. Cass is currently... Um, with a friend dieting at this time of the year. I mean, who does she think she is doing something like that? What? An, and she said that Thanksgiving's a cheat day. I would say from October first to January first is is it's free for all season, and then January first is when we kick it into gear. Would you guys agree that it's odd? It's an odd choice of time to start a diet. Guys, there's no time like the present. You just started one. You yeah, just started a diet too. Yeah, what is I can't wrong eat with you? Thanksgiving, but I also work two 12-hour shifts, so I won't be there able to go. partake in any of This is the time when discipline is needed. Yeah, well, you're not yeah. getting it from Buckets and Dan, I'll tell you that. Important. You're not getting it from Buckets and Dan. All right, Bill, you are now up to wrap up your team. No discipline, Buckets. You got no discipline. <laughs> All right, I'll go with uh, – What did Coach Simon get here? This is a toss-up because I, I don't have a food item on my, um, on my list. Disclaimer, Bill does not like Thanksgiving food. Yeah, I mean, there's one big there's one big food item still out there, but you know what? I'm going to go with something. It's a special time of the year, uh, and, and family is very important, And but another part of our social lives is our friends, and friends come back from out of town. So out-of-town friends come back. Very good. That, again, much more prevalent in college when Buckets and Dan came back to the full, but I still will never forget the first Turkey Bowl 
post high school when Brian Doxeter came back and it looked like he ate the high school Brian Doxeter when he walked out of the car to join us in the Turkey Bowl. He just was massive coming back from Arizona State. So, yeah, when friends come back, that is a good one. I believe I'm up and I was so I'm going to pander a little bit and I was going to pick my my actual favorite thing about Thanksgiving is the right before kickoff of the late game turkey and stuffing sandwich when you get your second wing or wind excuse me however I'm going to pander a little bit and I'm going to go with my my favorite actually besides stuffing my favorite on the on the table at Thanksgiving dinner menu item that is my mom's Sweet potatoes with the marshmallows on top of them. The again, they're really it should be used as a dessert with how much like maple syrup, brown sugar, and marshmallows are on top of them. They just happen to be on top of a, a yam or a sweet potato. But those are absolutely fantastic. And they usually provide a lot of entertainment because often the marshmallows light on fire in the oven with our family, and then it just causes chaos, even though it happens every single year. And someone's screaming, get the fire extinguisher, my mom's screaming, Don't ruin the potatoes, and it's it's just it's just chaos. But, yeah, I'm going to go with sweet potatoes with the marshmallows on top. And I believe, Keem, you are now up at, with our Mystery Relevant to wrap up our best things about Thanksgiving draft. Um, my personal favorite I'm going to choose is mashed potatoes and gravy. Oh, yeah, very good. Very good. Yep. You got a nice, you got a nice uh, food combo there with stuffing and mashed potatoes and gravy. Yeah, so do those me are a, my top two. Yeah, so do me a favor, wrap up your team. So you have stuffing, mashed potatoes, gravy, football. football. Wow, and what's your other one? Thanksgiving Eve drinking festival. Wow, you have a very, very strong team. I thought I was the clear winner. I would but you also chose something that had nothing to do with Thanksgiving. Yeah, well, I guess we'll yeah, find I out think what people you're think a about clear that. Clear loser. All right, well, I guess we'll let the voters decide, Cass. And so that so you feel strongly about your team then, Emily? I feel pretty good about it. Cass, can you wrap up your team and tell us how you feel? <laughs> yeah, I did Black Friday deals. I did watching slash not participating in arguments with family members over politics. Cultural. And then I picked uh, the after-dinner nap. Oh, good one. And then... That it's acceptable to have multiple meals multiple dinners. In one day. Yeah, that is a good one. So, what are your th- so walking out of your draft and you 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 built a team that it's win now. So, how how do you think your fans should be handling your team right now? Should they be excited? Should they be uh, cautiously optimistic? What do you think? <laughs> I don't like it. Um, I think I'm very optimistic. Very optimistic. Okay. I, I'm pretty optimistic here. Good. All right. Bill, how do you feel about your team? Can you do us a favor and um, recap your team? Yeah, I think anytime you, you, you look at the value picks there, you get you get leftovers in the third round. I think that's good. That's screaming value, screaming value. And then seeing, seeing old friends in the fourth round, I mean, I think that's good value. You know, going up to the top, turkey shot in the second round, probably could have gotten the third, but you're going back up to the top there, and you want to talk about, you know, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? I mean, those are the things. What did I get in the first round? <laughs> first round. I think you went Thanksgiving break, Bill. Thanksgiving, just the, yeah, the, you know, the holiday off. break. Having off. And, and, you know, that leaves some time. You know, that leaves some room for assumption, whether you're talking about the whole weekend or, or just not working that day. So, at the end of the day, I think it's good drafting. You know, Dan, you're going to ask me how I feel about my team. Eight and eight. <laughs> eight and eight. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I – my, I came away very happy with my, my draft. I, I picked my two safe ones 
with your family and then a food item. This week, I was looking for stuffing, but I knew that wouldn't last to the second round. Keem gr- scooped that up, which was smart. Um, I, I think that my it's going to be boomer bust. You know, I, I picked the Grigorenko in the in the second round. Are people going to be furious with the fact that I took the disc? Or are people going to be like, "Wow, that's creative"? It you is know, thing- maybe not a bust though. He's still in the league. Uh, yeah, yeah, could he's be. like a seventy-eight I mean, in a, NHL twenty-one. It's a great pick, but it's just not. It's gonna relevant. well, it's gonna come down to what the people think, and then obviously the Turkey Bowl. I was surprised, but actually, I'm not surprised that Bill went Turkey Trot or Turkey Bowl. I would love to see Bill participate in a tackle football game. But, yeah, I think we all, it's four very strong teams. We're going to let the people decide. So go to Twitter. Go to at Mount Rushmore 716. Our friends Nick Phillips and Adam Fran will post that for us to decide who won this with votes. So go ahead and go fight for your votes as well, the four contestants here. And I'm very – I'll say this. You know, a lot of times families will go around the table and – Someone, you know, an elderly relative will say, why don't we go around and say one thing we're thankful for? And I can't tell you how thankful I am for all three of you to be in my life. And I truly, I truly mean that. Aw, same, Dan. Thanks, Dan. We're going to have so much time on our hands. We might be bringing back Mount Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That'll do it. Thanks, Keem. Thanks, Cassie. And always, Buckets, it's a pleasure. Let's let the people decide. Go vote. Bye, guys. All right. See you guys. It's like November all over again. Alrighty then. Yeah, we'd certainly like to thank Cassie Wager and Emily Keem for jumping on it and doing a little bit of a flashback, Dan, to a little bit of a Mount Rushmore and certainly thank uh, Mount Rushmore 716 on Twitter for getting that posted for us. Um, go out and hashtag vote for buckets. But with that being said, I want to kick it over to a very, a very special interview. I guess you can call it our Buffalo sports blast from, blast from the past. And this week is with the father of Drew Bledsoe, Mac Bledsoe. Here we go! This interview is sponsored by R.E. McNamara. Have you been working from home and noticing how many rooms need an upgrade? Call R.E. McNamara at 741-4819. From basements to bedrooms, kitchens to attics, and especially when you want to convert a room into your home office, R.E. McNamara has you covered. 741-4819. We are extremely pleased here on Buckets and Dan to welcome on a unique guest this week. We'd like to welcome Mac Bledsoe on the show today. As we are a Buffalo-centric show, the last name Bledsoe, it might ring a bell in a few of your minds. And we will certainly talk about Drew's time and experience in Buffalo. But besides being Drew's father, Mac has a great story to tell that I think will resonate with many of our listeners today. So first, I want to say, Mac, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be talking with you and to reconnect with the Buffalo area. Love it. It was a very very pleasant time for Drew and our family. Absolutely. And I'd like to highlight, um, you know, your your childhood and your upbringing a little bit, because I think it'll connect us later in the interview quite well here on Veterans Day, um, recording this interview. Your dad was a pilot during World War Two. And after after he served, you moved to Washington early on in your life. You eventually grew up 
playing football to captain the Washington football team, University at Washington. Um, but just talk about the impact he and your mother had on you through your childhood. Well, um, my father was a very distinguished man, uh, a self-made man, um, and he was very demanding. And one thing that I sort of resented about him was that he never said, I love you. Um, I was 36 years old the first time I heard him say the words, I love you, to me. But that was when I was finally able to be a man enough to tell him thank you for all the wonderful things he had done for me. Um, I was sharing with my football team at the time um, that many times when people tell you they love you, it doesn't much feel like it or sound like it. And I use my dad as an example that uh, he told us he loved us by the fact that, well, we lived on a cattle ranch and there were years when things were financially very, very meager. And um, there was actually one Christmas where mom and dad told us we were not going to exchange gifts in our family. And yet on Christmas morning, we got up and there was a big gift for each of us four kids underneath the tree. And we watched in amazement as mom didn't get one, the love of his life. And that was a message of love. Another message of love from him was the fact that every year he'd load all four of us kids in the old cattle truck and we'd go into town and he'd pull in at Farrell's clothing and he'd tell us, go in and pick out a coat and don't look at the price tag. No, uh, when it comes to my children, there's no such thing as a bargain. Um, you get the best coat. And then we all watched in amazement as he wore the same old worn-out tweed coat almost the entire time we kids were at home. And we had new jeans in our drawers. My sisters had the latest styles in dresses and skirts and so on. I had new basketball shoes, new football shoes, new track shoes. And my dad wore wore-out old cowboy boots and ripped up old jeans and he was telling us he loved us that way and I was sharing that with my football team and uh, then I finally realized no I needed to tell my dad thank you for some stuff my mother on the other hand was the one that always made sure we knew we were loved she told us that and communicated that with us daily um the other thing that uh, my parents did for us four kids was they established very, very high standards for uh, personal conduct and personal performance, for which I am eternally thankful. Moving forward, uh, you, you met the love of your life while at the University of Washington your junior year. And after college, you actually, said... Oh, sorry about that. Actually, no... We actually we started dating when we were in the seventh grade. Oh, sorry, I messed that up. Yeah, that's okay. Um, yeah, she invited me to go to the girl ass boy dance 
And I went, and my granddad dropped me off, and he, there in front of the junior high, he reached over right before I was going to get out, patted me on the leg, and he said, kid, if you meet a winner in there, hit your wagon to her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you know what I think then? You got married your junior year at Washington, correct? That's correct, yes. Okay, so after college, first of all, I want to say thank you for your service. You served the United States of America as a first lieutenant and commander of the Enlisted Personnel Division at the Army Transportation School at, I'm sorry if I mispronounce this, and you can correct me, Fort Eustis, Virginia. Upon That's correct. Awesome. Upon completion of active duty, you and your wife returned to your hometown of Ellensburg, Washington. And I got to ask you, you know, I'm not exactly sure of how you're able to make this happen. How did you become a public school teacher without really, I'm not sure if you went to college for education? Yes, I did. I studied education. Okay. I got a, a dual degree in speech and psychology and then completed a fifth year uh, in reading. And um, I, when I got out of the Army, I came home in November and a little town right near Ellensburg where we lived uh, named Kittitas, I read a, an ad in the paper that they were looking for a reading specialist, and I didn't have any background in reading. Went out and interviewed for the job, and I was the only one with a college degree that showed up. <laughs> so I got the job, and I had no background in reading, so I went in and befriended a professor at Central Washington University in our hometown of Ellensburg and uh, studied reading and became a reading specialist for my first five years. I would like to get back to your teaching and how your Parenting with Dignity program started after we discuss you had two sons, one that we know in Buffalo very well, Drew, and you also had Adam. Uh, I want to know, growing up, I mean, Drew was certainly a star football player. Uh, we know that just from being NFL fans, being a first overall pick and the great career he had. But you attended Washington, and he attended Washington State. Was, that, was, was there any difficulty in that decision? Did you really want him to go to Washington, or what, did you leave the decision to him? Actually, uh, by the time he was going through the recruiting process, um, the coaching situation had completely changed at the University of Washington and a fellow by the name of Don James had taken over the program and it was, we taught our kids to extensively about how to make decisions, making positive and negative lists and so on and when Don James came to our house on it for his recruiting trip, uh, we actually, when our boys were both being recruited, both of them were highly recruited college prospects. And when they were being recruited, we always tried to entertain the recruiters at our house so that our kids were in their comfort zone rather than the coach. And Don James was supposed to be at our house at six o'clock for dinner and my wife had prepared her famous um, pot roast dinner for him, which is our boy's favorite meal, 
and he called at about 6.30, a half hour after he was supposed to be there and said he was at the country club and had accepted an invitation to have dinner there and wouldn't be over until about 7.30. And I looked at Drew, and I thought, holy cow, that guy really stepped on his his uh, mess. Yeah. He just, uh, he just stood up my son's mother, and when he got there... Um, Drew had done some research, and my nephew, my brother's son, had walked on over at uh, the University of Washington, and about five minutes into Don James' visit in our living room, I was so proud of Drew, he said, sir, whatever happened to Bo? And you could tell Don James didn't even know who Bo Bledsoe was, and he'd been on his team for almost three years. And uh, Gary Pinkle, who later became the head coach at Missouri, was his offensive coordinator, and he was there trying to uh, help Don James remember, and Don just didn't remember. And uh, my nephew, Bo, had gotten into some real trouble while at the University of Washington, and Don James didn't even know who he was, and about... Two minutes later, Drew stood up and said, well, I have a lot of homework to do. I'm going to go down and get with it. And I'm sitting there in our living room with Coach Don James sitting there saying to myself, well, I guess my kid isn't going to be a Husky. (laughs) (laughs) That's an incredible. And as it turned out, he played for the greatest coach, Mike Price, over at uh, Washington State. And his decision was far better than any decision he could have made by going where his dad went. Mm -hmm. That's not a valid way to make a decision. And, um, he, he made just the greatest decision and it certainly did work out well for him. You're absolutely right with that. He had a great career there and became the first overall pick in the 93 draft. And we know people my age, close to 30 years old, know the Patriots as being an absolute dynasty, but there was a long stretch of mediocrity and poor football there before, obviously being the first overall pick. So when you found out, when the family found out and Drew found out he was heading to New England, what were the initial thoughts? Actually, Drew was extremely well represented at the time by his agent, um, Lee Steinberg. And Lee, very quietly behind the scenes, told us um, being the number one, overall number one pick, um, usually is a very um, difficult thing because by definition, you wind up going to the worst team in the NFL Mm -hmm. um, the previous year. And he said, this is is about the best situation that you could have being the number one pick because this is the first time anybody in the history of the NFL has been picked number one in the NFL draft by a coach who's actually won a Super Bowl. Um, Bill Parcells was the coach at New England. He had just signed there. He had, had not yet coached there but um, 
he had, was the guy who had a winning track record. And that's not usually the case for the number one pick. So we were quite naive, but um, very excited about our son going there. And as it turned out, um, he went there, they started to win, and were in a Super Bowl by his third year. And uh, he went to the Pro Bowl four times as a Patriot, um, once as a Buffalo Bill and once as a Cowboy. So as it it turned out, it worked out quite well for him. And obviously, yeah, he had an amazing football career, amazing career in New England. You know, I don't don't really want to spend all the time and dive into the whole – you know, injury and Brady situation, but I would, I'm very curious to ask your opinion um, as a parent, uh, how difficult it was to watch, you know, the situation unfold in 2001. And I guess how much did Drew lean on you and his mother kind of for advice and how to get through that difficult time? Actually, by that time in his life, uh, we leaned on him way more than he leaned on us. He guided us through it. Our first reaction as parents was to be angry. And I was at Drew's house the day he came home from practice. And I was back there doing some speaking, uh, some parenting work. And he came home from practice and seemed a little uh, maybe disturbed or something. Usually when he walked in his house, first thing he did was wrestle with his three boys. But uh, on that night, he came in and said to his wife, he just said, Mara, i got to go in my office for a second. He went in there. He was there for only about five, ten minutes. And then he came out, wrestled with his boys, and we had dinner. And um, next morning, I got up, and I, I was having to leave early that day. And I said, you know, I have to leave early, but um, um, you seemed a little disturbed last night. Did something happen? And he said, yeah, Coach Belichick told me that Tom Brady was going to be the starter and I was now going to be the backup. And my immediate reaction was to say, well, help your kids have some baseball bats out in the garage. Let's go get a couple of bats and we'll go down <laughs> to the practice facility and straighten this out. And... I said, what are you going to do about that? And Drew very humbly said, well, Dad, it only took me about five minutes. He said, I went into my office, sat down at my desk, turned on my computer and my screensaver, had something that you taught me, that your father taught you, that your grandfather taught your dad, And it's the definition of honesty. Say what you mean, mean what you say, and then do the hard part. Do what you said you're going to do. And that's the screensaver on my computer. That's a principle I have used in making decisions in my life forever. And that's what I'm going to do. At the start of the season, I got up in front of that team and said I was going to give my best. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my best. And I'm going to go to practice every day. I'm still going to be, I've always been the first one on the field. I'm still going to do that. I'm going to be the last one off the field at the end of practice. 
I'm going to go through my personal drills before anybody else on the team gets there to keep my skills perfected. And if what they've got for me to do is be the scout team quarterback against the first team defense, then our defense better get ready to get better because they're going to play against an all-pro every day. Wow. And that's what he did. And got to the AFC championship game. Um, they were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers, and on the first drive, Tom Brady turned his uh, ankle and had to leave the game. Enter Drew. He went out through three touchdowns. They won the game, went to the Super Bowl, and for two weeks building up to the Super Bowl, all the media talk around the Super Bowl was would Coach Belichick start Tom Brady or would he put Drew out there? And Belichick, in true Belichick fashion, uh, didn't declare until game day that Tom Brady was going to be the starter and he put Drew back on the bench. And so here Drew put in all this work to get to the Super Bowl. He's in the Super Bowl and he's on the bench. <coughs> we came home from Buffalo or from uh, New Orleans that night and Drew said he has a place up here in Montana also and he said hey dad why don't you come over and pick me up in the morning we'll go skiing and my god it was three o'clock in the morning when we landed here and I said sure just try to be a good dad next morning I went up to his house to get him and he was already up and he was sitting reading a paper he had picked up in the airport in front of his fireplace. And I went in and I sat down and I said, son, that was one hell of a roller coaster of a season. Started out the first, um, the first, very first week of the season, you signed a new contract, the biggest contract in the history of the NFL that would have ensured that you'd be a, a New England Patriot your entire career. Then the fourth game, you got injured. By the sixth game, you were put on the bench, and Tom Brady was put in as the quarterback. You go all the way to the AFC Championship game, go out and play an exemplary game, and then have to sit there and have everybody question you for two weeks about who's going to be the starter, and then unceremoniously you're told, well, Tom's going to be the starter. You have to sit on the bench and watch Tom play the Super Bowl and be named the MVP of the Super Bowl with 135 yards of passing. And, my God, that, that's a really a roller coaster of a season. How are you doing with that? And he looked at me. He got kind of tears in his eyes, and he said, Dad, I got up this morning, went in the bathroom, took my shower, stood in front of the mirror to shave. As I was standing in front of the mirror, he said, I looked at that guy, and he said, you know, I think I like that guy. Well, that goes back to his freshman year in high school. Um, we coaches at Walla Walla High School, where he went to school, uh, challenged every freshman team to establish what they were going to be known for. 
and his his freshman class decided they were going to be known for the poem called The Man in the Glass or The Man in the Mirror. Um, you can look it up on online, but basically it says in, in all of life, people are going to call you all kinds of things and pat you on the back and say things to you and so on. But um, ultimately, the one you have to answer to is the guy looking back at you from the mirror. Mm -hmm. And if you've cheated that guy, it's going to be empty. But if you have lived up to his standards, you will be a proud person, and they will call you a man, my son. And he had had that poem in the back of his locker ever since his freshman year in high school. Went to Washington State University. It was in his locker there. Went to the Patriots. It was in his locker there. Went to the Buffalo Bills. It was in his locker there. And went to the Dallas Cowboys. It was in his locker there. And at that moment, when his career was most challenged, um, he was able to say, when he returned from that Super Bowl, that I think I like that guy, the guy in the glass. That's and it. that shows that it is possible to give kids uh, valuable standards, morals, values, ethics, spiritual beliefs that they can use to make the big decisions in their lives. And in the off season, it's very rare, you know, looking back on how this all unfolded, how a, a divisional opponent would actually, or a division rival, I guess, would trade their, their starting quarterback, who is known to be as a very, very good NFL quarterback. They, the Bills send their first rounder in 2003, and... I remember it very well, being 11 years old and my dad being super, super excited, calling me into my parents' room to watch the Drew Bledsoe press conference. And it was kind of like this, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but like we were, we're back, you know. We had Jim Kelly in the, all, all the way up until the mid-90s, did not really have a stable quarterback up until Drew um, came to Buffalo. So I got to ask you, from your perspective... I know Buffalo was elated to have Drew, but what was the initial reaction from, from you and Drew? And, and I guess leading into how did Drew really like his experience here in Buffalo, New York? Um, Drew was extremely excited to go to Buffalo. Growing up, um, we watched the NFL together and, um, we did a lot of stuff on Sundays, but we we always got the early broadcast from the Eastern Time Zone. So Drew, growing up um, later in the day, we wouldn't watch the teams out west much play because we were doing other things. But often get up Sunday morning, and by ten o'clock, the um, the Eastern time zone games would already be playing. And so Drew's big heroes were uh, Dan Marino and Jim Kelly rather than uh, Joe Montana and some of the guys playing out west. And so when he went to Buffalo, he was elated to go to the place and play for the team that his um, – one of his heroes, 
Jim Kelly had played and played in that tradition of winning that was up there, he was just elated. And when he got to Buffalo, um, they moved to a little rural place they bought outside of uh, East Aurora. Oh, yeah. You probably know who that is. Yeah. A cute little community with a five and dime on Main Street and so on. And his uh, first day back there, he called me after his first practice. He was on his way home, and he said, Dad, this is so cool. I'm in up here in the Buffalo area playing for the Buffalo Bills, and I am probably the only starting NFL quarterback who can drive all the way from his home to his place of work without encountering a single stoplight. <laughs> he drove back roads there, and I'll tell you, um, for our family, Buffalo, New York, was far and away uh, our favorite place that Drew played. Um, the western New York area reminded us very much of Montana, where we live now. The city of Buffalo and the city of Billings, Montana, are incredibly similar. Wow, it's interesting. And the community where they lived out in East Aurora was very rural and very homey, and they had neighbors that were the neatest people, they'd get snow, and Drew would go out. He had a little four-wheeler with a blade on it. He'd go out to plow his driveway, and the neighbors had already plowed it. <laughs> and when they were gone during parts of the off-season, they had new neighbors that would look in on it, and he was just a neighbor. He was not a celebrity to them, and... Um, well, when he got to Buffalo, um, I met a, a fellow by the name of Drew Serza. He's known back there as the Wing King. He's yep. the fellow who started the Buffalo Wing Festival. Yep. And at the time, he was a marketing agent for, uh, I think it was Prince Pasta. And he got a, them a as a sponsor for us, and Drew Serza took me. We had just recently started our Parenting with Dignity program, and he took me into the Buffalo area and introdu introduced me all over Western Europe, or Western, Western Europe. Western New York. <laughs> Western, Western New York. Might have been Europe. Might as well have been Europe for as far away as it was, but um, he introduced me all over that western New York area, and that became almost like a second home for Barbara and me. Uh, Star Point School District out by Niagara Falls. Yep. Um, a lady by the name of Mary Brown um, that Drew Serza introduced me to got me hooked up out there, and my gosh, I 
I traveled all over the United States talking about parenting, and in almost every community where I went, I bragged about Star Point School District and the things that they did and how they completely rebuilt their school um, by community involvement and so on. Um, my gosh. I, uh, it, it was oh, such a wonderful experience being in that western New York area. That's awesome to hear. And uh, I'm a teacher in Eden, which is just directly south of Orchard Park. And my co-host, Dan, is a teacher at Kenmore West. And I said at the beginning of the interview, I would like to draw it back to your program uh, that I just, you know, as a teacher now, find how this whole thing got started to me, I think is... Um, I'd say incredibly courageous as a teacher because I think sometimes, you know, battles in education nowadays are, are sometimes between administration and parents and, um, you know, things like that. So how were you, or maybe just kind of bring us through the beginning of your Parenting with Dignity program. At the beginning of the interview, I talked and, and said that you were a public school teacher for quite a long time. Um, so tell me how this program started and how it developed. Well, I, I taught school for 32 years, and about 15 or 16 years into our school teaching, my wife was also a school teacher. She didn't start teaching until our youngest son was in school, so she could be a ho at home being a full-time mom until both the boys were in school, but then she started teaching, and progressively we started coming home from school more disillusioned every day by the culture we saw in our classrooms. And finally, one night, um, we came home from school. I'd had a boy on my football team who was kicked off the team by the principal. Uh, he didn't even consult me. It was during a homecoming week, and there were some kids in the parking lot at the school drinking beer. And this boy on my team was out there with him. He wasn't drinking, but he was with him. And without consulting anybody, the principal kicked him off the team. And Barbara came home that same day. One of her project kids at the junior high where she taught had gotten in a whole bunch of trouble. And we were sitting at our dinner table going, God, this is so terrible what we see happening. And then we looked at each other and we said, you know, we might be the biggest part of the problem because we see it happening every day and we're not doing anything to change it. And we started talking about it and we said, you know, many days working with kids is very much like working with alcoholics and then sending them home to live in liquor stores. Speaking figuratively in most cases, but literally, unfortunately, in some others. Yeah. It, it seems almost foolish to work with the kids without working with the environment from which they come. Yep. And so we got, we got permission from both of our um, principals. She was at the middle school. I was at the high school. And we got permission from our principals. And we had one night that we invited the parents of the kids we taught to the school. Uh, we had them come to the multi-purpose room at the high school and we each had about 150 kids a day 
And I'm not going to tell you we got every one of the parents, but we got a much better turnout than we ever got at open house. And they came to the school. And at the time, we had what we called three rules for teachers. And we printed those up, crossed out teachers, put in parents, and called them three rules for parents. And within um, within the first couple of weeks, we began to notice a profound change in our classroom after just one night with the parents. And we thought, huh, you know, maybe we're onto something here. We started uh, noticing many changes. The, the biggest immediate change that we noticed in both of our teaching experience was the number of blank spaces in our grade book that started filling up. The kids were turning in assignments because somebody at home was actually reinforcing what we were teaching at school. Turn in your work. Do your homework. And we thought, golly, you know, we're on to something. And over the next... Uh, eight, ten years, we had been doing a lot of work. We were teaching school in the state of Washington, and we were, I, I was speaking at the uh, state PTA convention and so on, and um, we would go and visit other communities and do parenting nights and so on, and we were doing uh parenting courses in our own community and we had written a fairly complete curriculum and then Drew was in his uh, second or no first year in the NFL and he got they didn't go the Patriots didn't go to the Super Bowl his first year but as a player he got a couple tickets to go to the Super Bowl and he said, hey, mom and dad, I want to invite you to go with me sort of as a payback for all you've done for me. I want to take you to the Super Bowl. And it was in um, Phoenix, Arizona that year at the University of Arizona. And we went down there at the University of Arizona Stadium. We went down there to the Super Bowl. And a couple of nights before the game, Drew invited us to go out to dinner. And we went with him, and we were, we were kind of shocked that his fiancée, Mara, um, was not with us. It was just Drew and the two of us. And come to find out, he took us to dinner because he had something he wanted to propose to us. And I think he wanted to get us in a public place so we couldn't scream and yell. <laughs> And so that we would listen politely, because he wasn't sure how we would take this. But he said, Mom and Dad, I want to challenge you to take a year away from teaching. And what I want you to do is um, I want to create a foundation to back your Parenting with Dignity program. We can call it the Drew Bledsoe Foundation. Um, he said, I was unaware of the power of the celebrity position of an NFL quarterback, but now I'm able to see the power of it, 
And he said, I think it gives our family an extreme opportunity to leave a bigger footprint in the sand. I want to build a foundation around your Parenting with Dignity program. And he said, my dream is I want to challenge you to take your curriculum that you have built, the teachings, and I want you to put it on videotape so we can take it to any parent in the nation. And then I'll let the spotlight of the NFL shine on what you're doing. And that's now 27 years ago. And we have now educated over 7.5 million families. We have people actively using our program in every single one of the 50 states. We are now active in 89 prisons nationwide, and our reach of our program is still growing. And um, for the first, oh golly, nine or 10 years, our program was known as the Drew Bledsoe Foundation. Now it just stands on its own as Parenting with Dignity. And it's been an amazing partnership with our son. I took a year's leave of absence from teaching school that is now stretched to 27 years. <laughs> it's uh, Ben, that's an incredible story. I want to ask you to tell our listeners, we, we do have quite a few teachers who listen to our podcast and some some young parents, I would say. Um, how can how can our listeners learn more about about your parenting with dignity program? Uh, very simple. Go to www.parentingwithdignity all one word parentingwithdignity.com, and you can see our uh, all of our workbook. You can look at all of our objectives in the facilitator's manual it's there the parents workbook is there for free there are uh, literally a couple hundred articles that I've written also there you can purchase both books that I have written on the issue of parenting and you can download our nine-week parenting curriculum on video you can download it onto your computer as a digital download, or you can order it as a DVD set. Uh, it's nine one-hour classes. And the, as I said, the parents' workbook is there on the Internet, on the website for free. Um, you can print the workbook, and you can go through the assignment. Um, you're much better off if you can get a group of eight or ten families to go through them together with you. You'll learn more from each other than you will from what we're teaching. Um, and you'll build a community surrounding your kids. It takes a village to raise a child, and you'll raise a community of people with common parenting skills so that your kids will run into the same kind of stuff when they visit their friends because their parents have been through it. Um, and any teachers that would be interested, um, all the good parenting is good teaching. 
and all of the principles that are that we teach virtually all of them uh, are also applicable in the classroom well the very okay. same techniques are applicable in the classroom well mac i want to really sincerely thank you i feel like i could talk to you all day long um, seem like an incredible guy, and I just want to, first of all, thank you for being so transparent with us about everything with Drew and everything that you do. Um, so I really appreciate it, spending you know this great amount of time on this Veterans Day. I also thank you for your service to our country. So uh, I hope you have a great day, and I really just really appreciate you coming on our show this morning. Yeah, um, if you get some response to this, um, let me know. I'd love to come back on. I'm I've got lots of information we could talk about. We could do we could do the one whole segment of your program about my dad's service in the Navy. Um, it's a pretty graphic and pretty moving story. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And I want to congratulate you for choosing to be a teacher. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Someday... I am uh, I'm approaching my 75th birthday here in about a month, and um, in my life's experience, I am quite possibly the most wealthy person I know. I don't have a lot of money. I'm wealthy because of the relationships I've had with all the young people who have come in and out of my classroom. Mm-hmm. And I hope that you find that your teaching career is equally as rewarding. I certainly appreciate that, Mac. I, I, I love it so far. I hope to do it for a long time. Well, you're never going to make much money teaching school, but uh, you're going to be a very wealthy man mm -hmm. because of all those kids that are going to come through your classroom and enrich your life. Absolutely. Well, Mac, thank you so much again. Um, hope to talk to you soon someday, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Okay. Continue to dream big and be a great teacher every day. Alrighty then. Thank you to Mac Bledsoe. Talk about a diverse conversation. Buckets did a great job. The Bucket Solo special. Usually you got to pay extra for that, folks. So that was that was a great a great interview. Let's move on to our our ending segment here. Let's start with our Buffalo Boutique Boards Fantasy Fling of the Week. Yeah, Dan, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a good week last week. Let's talk about the guys we had last week because we got to hold ourselves accountable here. Uh, but I went with a deep dig at tight end, former Bill, Logan Thomas. I uh, thought he'd have a big breakthrough game, and unfortunately he had two receptions for six yards, which got you 2.8 points on most fantasy scoring formats. I went with Derek Carr. Again, not a real reach here. He's had a pretty good season to begin with, but he had another monster game, 275 yards, three touchdowns for 27.6 points in a very entertaining game with the Kansas City Chiefs and a tough loss for the Raiders, but the Raiders are right in that mix of teams for those final wild card positions, so it'll be interesting moving forward. This week, I'm going to go with the Gus Bus, Gus Edwards. I don't know the fantasy implication, excuse me, the implications of COVID in terms of are any running backs going to be available now that the game got moved from Thursday to Sunday. But as of now, it's just Gus Edwards and Justice Hill. So you got to feed 
excuse me, you have to feel like they're going to feed him a lot. So I'm going to go with Edwards. Uh, Dan, mine is a little bit, again, I'm, I'm talking to the blue collar fantasy owner, you know, the fantasy owner who's six and four, maybe five, you know, whatever, kind of, kind of middling and hoping for a playoff push. And maybe you lost your tight end. Maybe you lost to Jimmy Graham. But let me tell you something right now. Steve Levy, okay, is coming up with a funny, funny thing to say after Jacob Hollister scores a touchdown Monday night against the Eagles. Jimmy Graham went down. I could just see it happening in front of my eyes right now. Jacob Hollister is going to score a touchdown. He should be a double-digit fantasy guy. So if you need a tight end, look out. He's probably on the free agency wire. All right. And that's Jacob Hollister, tight end Seattle Seahawks. Okay, very good. Let's move on. Before we get to our NFL game, we're most excited. Let's get to our Thanksgiving Day football projections. The day kicks off with your classic noon game when you're you're just you're either cooking or maybe you just got to a relative's house. Maybe you just got home from a turkey bowl or the turkey trot. It's your game at Detroit this week. This year it is Houston at Detroit. Bill, you have Houston winning big. I got this as a blowout. You know, Detroit, um, they kind of impressed me at times earlier in the year, but what a really disappointing showing they had last week. And I think Houston is a much better team than their record indicates. Deshaun Watson plays very well, um, especially when the spotlight is on him. I got Houston in this one, big 31-13. I have this one being a snooze fest, an absolute just bore of a game. Turnovers all over the place, two crappy teams, 19-13 Houston because Detroit stinks. Let's move on to a game that is actually going to hopefully be as entertaining as the implications indicate. The red, excuse me, the Washington football team at the Dallas Cowboys. Like I said earlier, I think it's a Andy Dalton revenge game off that dirty hit he took that knocked him out a few weeks. He's going to have three touchdown passes. Cowboys win 30-26. to I got Washington 24-20. I could see Alex Smith afterwards eating a turkey leg and, and talking about you know all his times, um, thinking that he would never play in the NFL again. Very good. That, it, that definitely would make for some good TV. Let's move on to our NFL game we're most excited to watch because this game for you got moved from Thursday to Sunday at 1.15. I don't know the slate of games, but it's being moved to 1.15 p.m. on NBC, if I'm reading this correctly, which means we could possibly have three games going at once if Fox has a 1 p.m. game while the Bills are playing. Yeah, for me, Dan, Pittsburgh is, again, I'm not, no slight. I think they're a good, strong AFC contender. I certainly think that they can come out of the AFC. Um, but I don't think they're 10-0 and good. And I think they've got quite an easy draw this year, similar to the Bills of the last couple years. Um, for me, they're catching another good draw. They're catching Baltimore while they're down, while they have a bunch of COVID in- implications in the locker room. They won't have a running game. I like Pittsburgh to win it, but again, you're, you're talking about watching other games um, to kind of scout out other teams for Buffalo, and for me, that's the game to watch. I The same thing for me in terms of implications for Buffalo. I got the 7-3 and three Colts visiting the 7-3 and excuse me, seven and three Titans visiting the 7-3 and three Colts. Colts coming off a monster, both teams coming off monster wins, Titans winning in Baltimore in overtime, Colts winning actually in overtime, in overtime against Green Bay. 
So that should be a fun game. Colts have already beaten the Titans, so I I think we have a consensus here that I it used to be Baltimore for me. I, I don't know what you think. I think the Titans are the team I don't want to face moving forward. But all them. these teams have strengths and weaknesses. I mean, the Colts have probably one of the two good defenses in the NFL right now. So that's another team that could give us trouble. But I definitely don't want to see Tennessee again in the playoffs, at least in week one. And Pittsburgh, I, you're right. Oh, um, I'd see – I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the Colts to win that game again. I'm gonna take the Colts. I don't I think Tennessee again they're frauds. However, I don't want to face them. I'm kind of contradicting myself, but either way, um, I don't want to. I want them to keep getting buried here. I do want the Steelers to win because I want them to win this week, the following week when they host Washington. I want them coming in undefeated when they get to Buffalo for that Sunday night game. So I will be rooting for the Steelers as well. You're you're right. It's not the Steelers' fault. They're just playing who's on their schedule. But it it has you know. Things have fallen quite their way so far, so hopefully the things continue until they get to Buffalo. As we wrap up, I want to thank our guests, Michael Barron and Mac Bledsoe. Thank you to Mo Dakil for his time that we did not get on the show because I screwed up the editing, but thank you. Thank you to Daily Buffalo 716 for being for letting us be a podcast partner, and thank you, Buffalo Close Fanatics, for, for letting us be a contributor. Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for continuing to tune in, our loyal listeners. Thank you for everything you do for us. Thank you for buying our shirts. Thank you for subscribing, for leaving us ratings. Buckets, I want to thank you for, as I've said before, it's just another case of Buckets pushing me out of the comfort zone and getting us back in the saddle here. I couldn't, I can't enjoy it any more than I do. Thank you for everything you do, and uh, thanks for being Thanks for being a great friend as well, Bill. I hope you and your family have a great Thanksgiving. You too, Danny. All right. So all our listeners have a great Thanksgiving. Love you, Mom. No!